Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. I covered the breakfast show on Monday and I had the great privilege of speaking with Dr. Alfred Moss, a professor of medicine from West Virginia University, about his recent paper on the negative effect of COVID lockdowns. It was such a powerful conversation. I wanted to make sure I shared it here with you also. I'm then checking in with my local Napier Democracy NZ candidate, Martin Langford. I'm hoping to see how things are going on the campaign trail, and I'd like to chat about some of the unique challenges that Napier's facing ahead of the election. And then finally, I speak with Mike Shaw from Men Against Sexual Violence about how to change men's attitudes and culture towards women and fostering positive patterns of behaviour in a real and sustainable way. Marty will be back for Media Matters and we'll talk about his weekend away at the NZDSOS conference as well as what's going on both in the newspapers and politics over this last week and of course we'll finish things off with the Woke News of the Week. Time though to dive into the mailbag and there has been plenty of feedback from you this week. Uh, This one is from the text machine. I totally agree with this conversation but it's worth mentioning that there are a small percentage of women out there who are also into sexual exploitation of young children and that will be in regards to my conversation with Helen Taylor from Exodus Cry last week. Excellent interview, a very important subject way to go RCR. Hi, Marie. Thank you so much for bringing so many critical thinkers to Reality Check Radio. I really love hearing the voice of Reason and Veritas. Uh, That'll be for Professor Peter Bogosian. If you didn't catch that last week, it was an amazing conversation. Also some feedback from Breakfast as well on Monday. Uh, Good morning, Marie. This breaks my heart what has happened to Kelly J and all those other women on the March 25th. As far as I'm concerned, any biological woman or trans woman that supports violence against other biological women will never, ever, ever deserve the title of woman. Thank you, RCR, for all your amazing work that you do over so many topics. You guys are amazing. 
Good interview with Di. I plead to all men to accompany their fair ladies to the protest. This anti-woman pro-trans activism must be stopped. We can't help living the lie. Many are being deceived. The truth must be revealed. Come on, blokes, protect our ladies. Hi, Marie. Nice to hear your voice on Paul's show this morning. Read the COVID jabs. It seems the vaccines have always been a whole lot less safe and effective than we've been led to believe. Mark and Sam Bailey have done some research into this. It's worth looking into the whole virus vaccine industry. All drugs, including the vaccine, are about creating wealth for big pharma and nothing to do with our health. Healthy people do not need to make money for these greedy elites, Linda. I always enjoy your shows as much as I enjoy Paul in the morning and your dulcet tones were a welcome surprise. Oh, thank you so much. Identity ideology is indeed fiction. And that's referring to the replay I did with Helen Joyce on Monday morning. Hi, Marie. Thank you for stepping in for Paul's seamless transition. Thank you. Appreciated your interview with Alvin. Regards, Peter. Well, you've got a treat if you've missed that. I'm going to replay that interview this morning. Outstanding morning show this morning, Marie, and I loved your music too. Keep up the great work. Thanks, TJ. And Marie, you're a breath of fresh air, as is Di. Keep up the awesome work. Thanks, Maureen. Cluster B. Oh my goodness, Marie, this makes so much sense and fits perfectly within our lives. Josh spoke so well about having grown up under a cluster B narcissistic Jezebel and taking on the borderline personality disorders and all the other crazy labels. Thank you so much for sharing, Josh, and the cluster B blessings, and that's from Anita, and I'm so glad you enjoyed that, Anita. Well, there is so much great feedback there. Thank you so much for sharing it with us, and remember, if you want to share your feedback, 2057 is the text number, and inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. It appears that not everyone likes a good bedtime story on Aotearoa Farm. As the days draw closer to the election on the farm, the pigs are frenetic. It appears in many cases, frenzy takes the form of fantasy and fairy tales, especially for Chippy Pork and Squealer Robinson. After the revelations of the previous week of the sorry state of the feed silo, Squealer appears nonplussed. He really can't understand what all the fuss is about. With the mounting debt from the feed merchants racking up, Squealer encouraged Chippy Pork to push forward on his plan to woo the farm animals with their aspirational plans for Aotearoa Farm. After all, the sun will come out tomorrow. And push ahead he did, promising even more feed year on year if they were elected back. However, the animals appear not to be buying it quite like they did in Napoleon's day. Even the sheep are lukewarm on the plan, barely bleating a thing. Don't worry about it, Chippy, Squealer encouraged. They love more feed. They'll soon forget about the hunger in their bellies, the cost of keeping the barn over their heads, or being able to get to the vet sheds when they're sick. Not to be outdone. The free-range pigs waded in on the action. Shawshank and his dim-witted sidekick promising even more holiday time for the animals if they were allowed back into the central seat of power. The free-range pigs perhaps under the influence of far too much time in the electric poo patch have managed to craft one of the greatest myths on Aotearoa Farm. The Great Weather Reckoning complete with their own weather deities, has now grown to cult-like proportions, indoctrinating all the pigs from Chippy Pork to Oinky Lux, even Davy Piglet. 
Shawshank and his young Puha-indulging, glitter-loving followers have been spreading stories far and wide across the farm. When it rains, the weather gods are angry. When it's too sunny, the weather gods are even angrier. And woe betide of anyone other than Shawshank and all the elite porcine classes if you use any of the old tractors or keep an electric light on too long. You will anger the weather gods and doom Aotearoa farm to a future of wrath and destruction. Stories of these vengeful gods are now being taught in schools the length and breadth of the farm, terrifying the farm's piglets and pups, lambs and kids, confusing and terrifying the farm's young in equal measure. One sector in the farm that appears to be immune to this insanity is, you guessed it, those back paddock dwelling chickens and that wily old donkey Winnie Ben. Same manure, different day. As the chickens predicted, once the panic of the sickness was to pass, Shawshank and his pack of poor-loving porcine were going to rise up and keep the Frison Fair active across the farm. And of course, the ever-eager sheep were only too happy to comply. It appears cult indoctrination and fear-mongering pays well in feed, and the sheep never like to miss a meal. Winnie Ben is having none of this overinflated weather mumbo-jumbo, concentrating on issues closer to home, like the gangs of weasels and stoats terrorising every flock, valley and paddock, and making sure the needs of Kiwi farm animals are met, and be buggered what anyone else from the neighbouring farms might think. With it becoming harder and harder every day for our farmyard flocks to determine fact from fantasies, the election coming up will be watched closely to see who gets a happy ending and who does not. Tune in next week exclusively here on Reality Check Radio for more Aotearoa Farm or download and share any of the episodes of Aotearoa Farm using the new RCR app. Available both from the iTunes and Play stores. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie on RCR. I have the great pleasure to welcome Professor Alvin Moss from the University of Medicine of West Virginia. Good morning and welcome to Reality Check Radio. Good morning. Thank you very much. It's so good to have you along. Now, for our listeners who may not have come across you in the literature or out in the wider digital world, let us know where you're from and what brought you to an article that we're going to discuss very, very shortly. Sure. Sure. Well, I am at West Virginia University School of Medicine. I'm a professor and I direct our statewide ethics committee network. And we annually get together for a meeting of physicians, nurses, social workers, chaplains. It's really an interdisciplinary group 
And when we first were allowed to get together after the lockdowns were over, which was May of 2022, we realized in a panel discussion that we were talking about the COVID pandemic and the response to it, we realized that a lot of people had many things to say about it. And I'll just give one example. A nurse who worked in a nursing home reported on the fact that the patients were moved from room to room to room. There was no dignity, no respect. And finally, sometimes they were even put in the kitchen because they weren't using the kitchen because of the lockdown procedures they were using. So there was just a certain indignity about it. So myself and a philosopher ethicist who also uh, teaches at West Virginia University and I, we were both speaking at this conference. We compared notes. And it was really uh, Dan Miller, the first author, who said, "This these lockdowns were done without any consideration of the countervailing Con, uh, you know, considerations or the, the repercussions, potential repercussions in many different areas of life. We'll probably get into them. But so I am, uh, in addition to being an internist and a nephrologist and board certified in hospice and palliative medicine, I'm also fellowship trained in clinical medical ethics. And it was my interest in medical ethics that really um, sparked my concern about the lockdown and what I knew about public health ethics from having taught a couple of electives about it over the years. But I should say, Marie, that my opinions are my own and that they're not those of my employer. Isn't it interesting that you had that conversation, what's it, 2022? Because that was probably the first time that everyone was in person because up until yes. that point, all these digital barriers and roadblocks had gone up. Yes. And that in-person contact is so important. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. And what's interesting really is there were a group of maybe 85 of us in the room and we had people speaking up who said things like, I never talk in large groups, but I just have to get this off my chest. And it was, for example, that nurse talking about how, how, how much moral distress she had faced from just things that she witnessed and that she had to do to do her job. Yeah. Yeah. So in the article, which is called Rethinking the Ethics of COVID-19 Pandemic Lockdowns, there's this paragraph, and it says, long before the COVID-19 pandemic, public health leaders cautioned against the forerunners to lockdowns in pandemics, forced isolation and quarantine. Isolation is a separation of, of affected persons for the period of communicability, for example, at home, in nursing homes, or in hospital COVID-19 units, to prevent the spread of infection in the community. Quarantine is the restriction of activities of exposed healthy individuals for the duration of the incubation period to see if they become affected. The COVID-19 lockdowns were even more restrictive than isolation and quarantine because nearly all persons were ordered to stay at home, even those who were well and who had not had infection exposure. This is the first time in world history of pandemics. Why? Yes, this and that's a really good question. And that paragraph actually leads into the next one. So before I answer your question, why? Throughout public health ethics literature, it says over and over again, use the least restrictive means possible. Voluntary measures are preferable to mandates, to mandatory measures, right? We always need to respect the dignity of the person. We don't, a lockdown would be a deprivation of human liberty. And these are not things that we would want to do. And it cautioned, the literature cautioned over and over again, whatever you do, don't lose the public confidence 
in public health. So we have that for, you know, for 20 years in the public health ethics literature, that is these, these thoughts, principles have been repeated over and over again. And then we went directly against them. And I think your question, why, well, I'm going to sort of reflect it back to you because certainly you're a knowledgeable observer too. We did many things that went against the conventional wisdom of how you do things, right? Mm-hmm. We don't do a one size fits all. That's not the way good medicine is practiced. We identify those who are most vulnerable and make sure they're protected. But those who have essentially minimal risk, we don't deprive them of their liberty. You know, we, that is not the way we have previously done things. So um, I, I would almost throw it back to you. What, what did you observe? I mean, clearly they weren't using the recommendations in the literature to make their decisions. No, definitely not. And there was a, a, also a change in decisions too. I mean, we saw that uh, early on in the pandemic process. So I was traveling right across January and February of 2020. So the pandemic was beginning to unfold across the Western Hemisphere. And I was in the United States for a good chunk of that time. And I remember Anthony Fauci talking about the ineffectiveness of masking. Yes, yes. But then that messaging just completely completely flipped on a dime with no scientific backing whatsoever. Right, right. I mean, I had reviewed that literature about masking because as a physician who, um, uh, you know, takes a religious exemption and doesn't want to get the flu shot, I've had to wear masks during flu season. And so I've been, it's been of interest to me to see just how strong are the data about the effectiveness of, of masks and, and the data are not strong. And in fact, in, in Canada, uh, several times the uh, Ontario Nurses Association has sued hospitals that had a, uh, a masking policy. So if you didn't get the flu shot, you were mandated, required to wear a, a mask all day long throughout flu season while you were working. And so the nurses challenged that and in fact, they won their case because the evidence didn't support the effectiveness of masks. So Dr. Fauci no doubt knew that. He knew that the evidence was weak to support masks to prevent the spread of flu or respiratory spread um, infections. And so I think that's the reason why he came out initially that way. But then there was, a, a I would say, an agenda where they really wanted to stir up fear and certainly, you know, telling everybody to put on a mask certainly fit well and to stand at least six feet apart from each other made us afraid of each other. And then, of course, I don't know what word you use in New Zealand, but we use the word snitch. And in New York, for example, uh, people were encouraged to snitch on their neighbors if they weren't wearing a mask or if they weren't at least six feet apart. In New Zealand, we took it one step further. Our Prime Minister uh, openly encouraged us in the first lockdown not to talk to our neighbours. And they set up a police phone line specifically for neighbours to snitch on their neighbours if they believed that they were breaking lockdown protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the um, one of the things that the lockdowns did, at least in the United States, and you can tell me if it happened also in New Zealand, was it really, and even the CDC was the one who admitted this, it, it ushered in a mental health crisis of alarming proportions. The loneliness, the depression, 
the uh, teenage girls attempting suicide, the alcohol-related deaths, the suicides, the overdose deaths, all of those things went up dramatically during the pandemic. They had been rising slowly prior to the pandemic, but then went up another 15, 20, 25% in one year once the lockdowns were started. So, so I'm go ahead. Gonna, in, in, in regards to that, because one of the things, and I don't know whether this happened in the US, but one of the things that really annoyed me was the use of the word vulnerable, but without a clear definition of what vulnerable actually meant. Right, right. And in fact, we knew who was vulnerable early on because the CDC fairly early on said, I think it was something like, I forget what percentage of the deaths, but the vast majority of the deaths were people who were over the age of 70 and or had multiple comorbidities. And I I recall one report said that on average, the people who are dying had 2.6 comorbidities. So in other words, you know, maybe diabetes, maybe obesity, maybe lung disease, heart disease. But these were not, you know, people under the age of 70 who were just going about their life and didn't have serious illnesses. They were not really at risk. In fact, um, I looked at the infection fatality rate and it was vastly different in people over the age of 70 compared to people under the age of 70. And uh, really the younger you get, the less the risk. So this the you know the the school closures as part of the lockdowns were were incredibly harmful. Um, you know, in the article we document that the uh, Department of Education, the United States Department of Education, uh, does uh, does education statistics and noted that fourth and eighth graders in the United States, in their reading and math scores, their scores were much worse than they had been in decades. So that clearly it was very harmful to the education of children who were locked out of their schools and, and tried to do remote learning. But as we learned, a lot of children weren't capable of doing remote learning because their parents may not have had internet access or they may not have had devices for internet access. So that the children, you know, could, could be on their devices while other, you know, computers weren't used for work related things, for example. Um, so, uh, devastating emotionally, you know, mental health wise, devastating um, in terms of the education of children. And then we could go on. We could talk about employment. We could talk about the fact that if anything, public health ethics is seeks to be equitable. It seeks to treat people fairly and to treat all groups of people fairly. So what you wouldn't want in uh, properly executed public health interventions is you wouldn't want the lower income patients or people treated worse than people who are higher in income. But that's exactly what happened. We saw that in uh, in employment. We saw that in educational outcomes, the children from lower income, uh, Black Americans, uh, Native Indian Americans, had much worse educational outcomes as a result of the pandemic or after the pandemic uh, than than, uh, people who were more privileged and had higher incomes. So inequitable, restrictive, I mean, all unfair, all the things that you, the opposite of what public health ethics should try and achieve. 
But that's the conundrum, isn't it? Because politics got involved very early on. When you look at the current administration, which is like the one we have here, which is exceptionally progressive and works very, very hard in terms of uplifting the benefits and the awareness of oppressed classes and minorities. And yet, and yet, as you've just outlined, with these lockdowns, they had the exact opposite effect. How do they justify that away? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't think they tried to. I think they they acknowledged that that was regrettable. But the thing that that for your listeners and and certainly for everybody in the United States is if somebody starts talking about a lockdown again, we have to ask, well, what are you going to do to protect the children? What are you going to do to protect the vulnerable? What are you going to do to protect those who have lower incomes who maybe can't work remotely, but have to, you know, have to report for duty in person. Um, and, and they're not going to, because we don't have the evidence base, they're not going to have a solution um, to that problem. Um, mm. You know, that was the point we made in the article is the lockdowns, although public health ethics literature had said for years, don't go this route. It's, you know, it goes against the principles of, of medical ethics. We didn't have the hard data that we have now for all the devastating consequences of doing just what was basically said, you know, uh, don't do this. It was it was not forbidden, if you will, but it was strongly recommended against. OK, and um, what's interesting is um, you're probably aware of Dr. Anthony Fauci in New Zealand. You're probably aware of who he might be. But in an interview, um, he even said he he knew these were draconian measures, you know, and I had to just to make sure I had it right. I looked up who Draco was. He was a Greek city statesman who is known for his harsh, harsh and utterly repressive measures. And so Dr. Fauci described the lockdowns as draconian. And he said he knew there would be collateral damage and negative consequences. But he and the public health experts who worked with them totally underestimated how severe they were. And even once it became apparent how devastating they were, they didn't ease up. You know, only in, in the United States, in Florida, for example, in Georgia, we had a couple of, of states where the governors, um, you know, sort of more or less unilaterally just said, we're not following the CDC recommendations anymore. We're mm -hmm. doing what we think is best for the people of our state. Well, I was and, going to bring that up because because this is where the politics comes in, isn't it? So, I yes. mean, you had states like California, Michigan, New York were very draconian in their lockdown measures. And then you had states like Georgia, Florida, South Dakota, for argument's sake, took more of a Swedish model to it. Yes. So, therefore, would those, I mean, those would be two completely opposing data sets now. Yes. yes. How has any of that come out in literature and been discussed openly? So, um, you know, the mainstream media in the United States doesn't want to call attention to the fact that really those who locked down very harshly and those who pretty much opened up as soon as they could, often the outcomes are better in the states that opened up earlier, as opposed to like California, which has very poor outcomes, my recollection. I mean, we have something called Worldometer. It's available to you, too. I don't know if you call it Worldometer or Worldometer, but um you know, and you can look at the cases per million or the deaths per million and, and the states that really locked down 
did not have better outcomes. And in point of fact, those that really locked down had much worse economic outcomes and educational outcomes. So they're really harms. But let me come to this difference between the states. The difference between the states and the fact that those who locked down the most severely didn't have better outcomes. In fact, often they had worse outcomes. A result of all this, what we've been talking about, masks, no masks, wear two masks. At one point, Dr. Fauci said everybody should be wearing two masks. Um, you know, he went, I think somebody kind of, he, he flip-flopped five times on masks is what one, one commentator said. But all of this, the public was not, at least in the United States, was not asleep, you know, because the, uh, there was a poll by NBC News, a major mainstream media uh, news outlet in January of 2022 that showed that the majority of Americans no longer trusted the CDC on management of COVID. And another marker for that is although roughly about two thirds of Americans got at least one COVID shot, only 30% got the first booster. You know, after the first series within a year, they said, oh, we see waning effectiveness of these shots. In fact, the Delta variant had developed during, you know, the pandemic and the Delta variant was worse probably than the, uh, you know, than the alpha variant. And what was interesting is in countries that really kept good records like Israel, the majority of the people who were hospitalized and very sick and even dying were the doubly vaccinated, you know, the fully up to date according to the original definition. So by the time you're a year out, you now have only a third of Americans getting the first booster dose. And then if you recall a year later, then they brought out the bivalent booster, you know, which had, uh, you know, some activity against the Omicron variant, and only 18% of Americans had gotten the bivalent booster. So what's going to be really curious now, especially you may have noticed just this week, the FDA and CDC yeah. just approved a new, um, a new uh, booster, okay, that's targeted against a, a variant that was circulating in the United States three months ago, but it's almost no, not to be found. So we have a mismatched booster. And the question is, what percentage of Americans are going to get this? I'm, and, I'm guessing it's going to be low. And, and the concerning thing about that, even if you believed that this was necessary, was the recommendations that they still recommended it even on emergency use for six months and above, which yes. is just insane. So let's unpick the thread with the CDC. I looked at that firstly, and it was released and approved on the September 11, which I yes. found yes. slightly yes. ironic. It is, uh, yes. And then that whole sort of definition of madness of doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result. Yes. And the mistrust, the public perception, like there seems to be a disconnect between those making the decisions and the public in which they're making the decisions for. Is that something you're observing in the United States? Oh, absolutely. So when I talk to my colleagues, when I talk to a bunch of doctors, in fact, I just recently, we were conducting fellowship interviews, fellowship in, in medical training, somebody who finishes a residency, you know, the internship and a couple of years after that, and then they want to do specialized training, they're, 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 they become fellows. And so I was interviewing a bunch of our fellow candidates, and we got into a discussion about the distrust of physicians and the medical system now in the United States. 
I mean, you know, when families are told they can't visit their loved ones who are dying, when they're told to wear masks and then not wear masks and then wear masks, and when they observe that the vaccinated are getting COVID just like the unvaccinated and maybe even getting sicker than the unvaccinated. Uh, we've had two studies. I don't know if you're aware. The Cleveland Clinic is a well-known medical institution in the United States. And the Cleveland Clinic came out with a couple of interesting studies in June. Uh, one showed that the more booster shots you got, the more likely you were to get COVID, <laughs> which certainly doesn't speak to the effectiveness of the vaccine. And then the other was that the uh, the bivalent booster did not seem to be effective against, in fact, it had negative effectiveness against the Omicron variant. So, um, you know, why would you trust a system where the things that you're being strongly recommended to do are turning out not to be good for your health. I mean, you know, uh, we, we heard uh, get vaccinated and you won't get COVID. And now everybody I know has had COVID, whether they were vaccinated or not. And they may have even had it several times. And I've had patients say, I got all five boosters and I still got COVID three times. You know, um, they say, well, maybe it was milder because I had all those boosters, but actually the data don't suggest that. In fact, there's, you've probably been reading about immune escape and they're, mm. they're, virologists who are talking about the fact that, uh, you know, people who are, um, have natural immunity seem to be much better able to ha handle these new variants as they come mm -hmm. along because they, um, you know, the, their, their immune system has not been trained to uh, respond with antibodies to a variant that's no longer circulating. See, we have a um, pandemic of metaphorical elephants in this country. What we had here was a it's interesting scenario because we're an island, a series of islands. Uh, we had a natural moat around us, and our borders closed relatively quickly. So the uh, they closed the borders, I think, within five days. And everyone that was told that if you're offshore and you want to get home, you need to do it now. Only a very small percentage of them managed to do it, but of course, the virus came in with it. We went into lockdown at the end of March 2020. Effectively, after that, after that original Wuhan outbreak, New Zealand eliminated the virus from its shores. And then we went into exceptionally uh, draconian, almost pernicious-like lottery. It was almost a Hunger Games-type scenario in order to, to re-enter your country with quarantine and the like. So what we had here was is a country uh, locking us down in order to get ready for a vaccine that everyone was promised is going to fix everything. And then this mass vaccination campaign rolled out. So we had a situation where we had vaccination prior to initial infection. What we're seeing now is a wave of sickness. Our headlines, um, there was one just last week, uh, an emergency room doctor talking about the illnesses coming through his door and adults having gravely bad RSV virus and the worst flu season that they'd seen in a long time and all of these things. And as I said, we have a pandemic of metaphorical elephants running around because nobody wants to look at the overall measures in its entirety to say that, well, actually, you have, you know, you're now sowing what you've reaped. Right. We caused this. Yes. Yes. There's literature on the flu shot. I don't know if you know this, that people after the flu shot during flu season may not get the flu, may not get the flu, but they'll get all sorts of other influenza like viruses. So that you wonder with all the immune systems that have been damaged by, you know, repeated shots, COVID shots, if people are going to be more susceptible to, 
to the flu or to other, you know, respiratory viruses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, they're talking about other things as well. You know, are we seeing more strokes, more heart attacks? Certainly myocarditis is something that's just off the charts. And for, unfortunately, in, in young men, you know, mm-hmm. 18 to 24-year-old men. And we had so an exceptionally high vaccination rate here, and and we did a divisive digital passport system. So by the time that that system came in, all the restrictions around that in regards to vaccination, it meant that eighty percent of all working aged New Zealanders were under a mandate of one form or another. It's difficult because you know we've just had a prime minister come out a couple of weeks ago saying, "Oh no, the vaccine was never compulsory. No one was forced to take it." Then that brings up the question of those ethics because. You have informed consent. I mean, informed consent has been the the bedrock of medical yes. ethics. Yes. Why? Again, why? Where did it go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the informed consent has seven elements, but one of them is an absence of coercion. It's voluntariness. It's not informed consent if you're being forced or mandated to take this, you know, medical treatment. So that's what I was saying. We threw out of the window, if you will, all that we knew about public health ethics, clinical medical ethics, and and it became a tyranny of sorts. And, you know, people who are um, skeptical say pharma has had too much influence in our government, at least in this country, perhaps in your country. I know people keep bringing up New Zealand. They say New Zealand and the United States are the only two countries in the world where we're allowed to have pharmaceutical advertising, advertising. freely yeah. in, in, in the media. And so I'm wondering, so we have um, capture of our, um, you know, we have capture of our uh, media outlets by pharma because they represent such a large percentage of the advertising income for these stations and they don't want to jeopardize their income, you know, their advertising mm. income. I'm wondering if that's the same in New Zealand. Not quite. Yes. Yes. And no, not quite to the same extent. So, I mean, in the United States, you, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many shows I would see and they, you, that had the show and they said, the show proudly brought to you by Pfizer. In this country, it was less than that. I mean, we don't actually funnily enough have a terrible amount of medical advertising on television for prescription medication. But in this country, it was the government. The government spent an inordinate amount on millions and millions and millions of dollars on advertising, getting the shots, making sure that you complied with COVID measures. It was blanket everywhere. You just could not escape it. It was, I mean, it made Soviet style propaganda look like you know, a sure. yeah. And you wonder, because our government did that too, and you wonder, first of all, where'd they get all that money from? And then at least in our country, they bought hundreds of millions of dollars worth of vaccines, even, even before they have been FDA approved. They were already buying them and they were already ready to be rolled out the day after they received FDA approval. So the whole process, they felt very surely there was not going to be a hitch. It's almost as if this whole thing was coordinated by the pharmaceutical companies. Mm. And there was so much money being given to the government that the government went along with it, right? It's almost that Mm. way. And certainly in our hospitalized patients in this country, everybody had the same protocol and it wasn't working well at all. I mean, everybody got remdesivir, everybody got a steroid, 
And, um, you know, if you got into the intensive care unit on a ventilator, you did not do well. Um, and, I, you know, I said at one point to the head of our, uh, you know, intensive care unit, maybe we should be looking at a different protocol. This one isn't working well, but um, the the incentive was there. If, if you in the United States, if a patient went on a ventilator, the hospital got another 10 or 13,000 more. If you gave remdesivir, the hospital got another 20 percent more for the hospitalization for a patient who was covered. You know, it's all the money was lined up for hospitals to just follow this protocol that really was getting poor results. I come from a sales and marketing background. So I looked at this entire rollout and I could see the process and what they were doing. And there's a thing called a funnel process in sales. And, and I was like, oh, they are feeding the funnel. And here, unlike the privatized medical system in the United States, we have a socialized medical system here. So all roads run through the government. We have an, a medicines agency here called MedSafe, and they were tasked at looking at the vaccine and doing their own assessment of the vaccine. And they had a series of recommendations back to the government and concerns around the rollout on the vaccine, which our government decided to completely ignore hmm. and roll it yeah. out anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, and- you know, and, and that's where we are now. And, and again, that erosion of trust because we have to trust that those who are governing us have our best intentions at heart. And I know for a fact that even old skeptics like me, I'm seeing lots of people who uh, have traditionally always trusted that the government had their best intentions at heart now have seen that that was not the case or it were at best misguided. Yes. Yes. And it's opened up the eyes of lots of people to well, if this is how these vaccines were approved, and if these vaccines had so many side effects, what about all the other vaccines? You know, it sort of opened people's eyes to start questioning whether or not all these other vaccines are really necessary. Mm. And are there side effects, just like, you know, clearly there were for the COVID shots. So moving forward now, before we head off, what are you seeing now, say, over the They've just released this new bivalent. You're about to head into your flu season. What are your predictions in terms of uptakes, reactions, and heading into even two with all the political shenanigans you've got going on? Sure. Are you sure. feeling headwinds and change with some of the medical ethics around all of this? Well, I mean, there's clearly a push in this country, in the United States, to just repeat the whole experience. There are Universities already mandating the shots for their university students, even though it's absolutely ridiculous because they're at most risk of the myocarditis. And why would you subject this younger population who has minimal risk from COVID to to a, a vaccine that has a huge risk potentially for that age group? We see masks, you know, people starting to mandate masks. Um, so it, they're trying to repeat the experience. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are going to resist. More people are going to resist this time than previously. And now we actually have an experience. We, we have knowledge of how it went and that it didn't work. And despite the masks, despite the vaccines, we had wave after wave of COVID, right? And, you know, the virologist said, if you vaccinate during a pandemic, you're only going to select for variants that will escape, you know, from, Mm. from the vaccines. And that's exactly what we've seen now. That's the reason why here we are, what are we only uh, 23 years into this? 
And we're now, you know, into our second reconstituted bivalent vaccine. And what's interesting, I don't know, this hasn't received a lot of news coverage, but there were no human trials on the Pfizer, the new Pfizer booster. Okay. It, it was, was like the 10 studies mice or something. Yeah. Well, I think there were 10 mice in one group and 10 mice in another group. So they only did try it, new vaccine on 10 mice, and they compared it to the, I think, the bivalent vaccine. So, and all they're measuring is neutralizing antibodies, but they have no knowledge of whether that's really going to correlate with protection or not, because this is a new variant and we would need to study it to see how effective this vaccine really is in humans. But they haven't done any of that. They've made hundreds of millions of dollars on their vaccines, but they haven't done the clinical studies. Mm. Um, I've got one other question I actually want to ask you as a professor. How are you seeing and perceiving the young medical students that are coming through when you challenge them? Because ethics is about challenging ideas. Yes. How are they coping with that? Are they, are they already coming in preconditioned to one viewpoint and you're actually having to, to shake their cage a little bit? So how are they coping? Yeah. Honestly, it's taboo to talk about the COVID, the whole COVID thing, because the mainstream media has so pushed it. And then what we have are our medical societies are coming after doctors and saying they, they, um, you know, they, uh, they were spouting misinformation. If they're quoting statistics that are true, but just don't go along with the narrative, you know, we have excellent doctors in this country, you know, who've lost their licenses or had their licenses threatened, who were, who were, you know, really recommending ways to try and treat people. You know, early on in this country, we didn't have a vaccine. And so people were, who were diagnosed with COVID were just told, go home. And if you get sick, come back. No preventive care. You know, no, no symptomatic treatment, no repurposed drugs, even though there was literature prior to COVID saying that hydroxychloroquine seemed to be effective against viral replication, ivermectin, at least in vitro, seemed to be effective against viral replication. There was, there was uh, literature on zinc. The zinc, once it got into cells, seemed to stop viral replication. There was literature on vitamin D boosting the immune status. So there were lots of things that could be done, but doctors who suggested those things got in trouble, um, mm. which is which is very sad. So at any rate, the point is, with regard to the trainees now, the medical students, the residents, the fellows, it's it's just not an area that you can comfortably in a large group have a discussion. You know, off to the side, maybe one student here or there will maybe ask a question, but not in a large group because they're afraid of um, what other people might think. And it's really sad that a lot of our young physicians and leadership have just totally bought into the pharmaceutical company narrative, even though if they seriously looked at the quality of the research that's been done, it's very shabby, you know, for, um, you know, 10 mice, 20 mice, maybe 100 humans. I think I heard Moderna had 100 humans in their clinical trial, but they didn't look for adverse effects. I think they just looked to see what the antibody levels were. And pretty much, if you read carefully all the news reports and statements, they say it might be effective. They don't give you any, you know, mm. any, any guarantee. And, and, and of course, we know from the first go around, 
the 95% effective was um, was not true. <laughs> no. Or it wasn't true. true for long. No. And it, it's really sad, that horizontal policing, in a way, yes. that has happened yes. amongst medicine. We've seen it here. And it is really, I can understand it, you know, particularly when you're in the grist in the mill, and I just remember it with Mr. Marie, is that you have studied and worked so hard so hard. And he said, there are points in your career. He said that you literally will not question anything because yeah. you need to get to that next point in your career. And if you right. create a roadblock or a pothole or anything along the way, yes. that could be career ending. But what he has found really difficult is coming out the other side is how so many of his colleagues know the ethics of lockdown or the, the lack of informed consent or any of those things is completely wrong and they feel utterly powerless to do anything about it. Yeah, or or are scared to do so. I mean, yeah. a lot of our young physicians are 200000 or $300,000 in debt and they can't afford to lose their job because they'll lose everything they have. So they have to keep quiet, um, you know, because of the system. Which then, of course, is completely cyclical around to trust, isn't it? That, you know, that trust that you need to have with your medical professional. Well, it has been an utter joy to talk to you this morning, Elvin. Thank you so much for your Likewise. time. Uh, this article, if people want, I'm, and I'm going to make sure that the link is with our team. So if you want to get a copy of that article, inbox at realitycheck.radio or flick us a text to 2057. But if people want to hunt it out for themselves, Rethinking the Ethics of COVID-19 Pandemic Lockdowns, it is published where? in the Hastings Centre report, came online August 8th. Lovely. Thank you so much. Don't disappear. Still more great content. I've got some replays, some of the Busky's best bits for you coming up here on Reality Check Radio. And thank you so much again, Dr Moss, for your time this morning. Well, you're quite welcome. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie and RCR. And it's great to welcome back local candidate for my electorate, Napier, Martin Lankford for Democracy New Zealand. Welcome back, Martin. How are you? Good morning. Uh, very well, thank you very much. Bearing up under all the pressure. I know, I know. It's we're at the pointy end of the campaigning stick now, really, aren't we? We're into the last, we're into the 30s now. So we really yeah. are. Yeah. Well, it's even less than that, really, isn't it? Because early voting, I think, opens on the 3rd of October. That's, so That's right. It's just it's that E-Day that keeps on being pushed into everybody at the moment. But yes, it's, it's that early voting. Um, and yeah, as you say, down to the pointy end. And there's quite a few meetings coming up over the just barreling up at the end of this month. It's like it's amazing how many places want to have the candidates come and talk to them end of end of this month. Yeah. yeah. Are you I mean, this is your first time around. But, I mean, you've been a layperson like us, you know, watching elections. I've never seen so many people so engaged in an electoral process in this country for a really long time. Are you kind of getting that vibe from people when you're going to these meetings? The people at the meetings, uh, yes, they seem engaged. But then there's a lot of people you talk to when we're doing our hoardings and meeting people out in town. And there are a lot of undecided still who are saying, oh, I don't know which way to go. I, my friends don't know. There's a lot of talk around the dinner table and we just don't know which way we're going. So there's the engagement, but there's still the indecision, which is, and that's quite striking. That what That's what really comes back. Mm. That undecided number is one that for me 
you know, with all the talk of the polls, that's the one that the big one that stands out. I mean, it's starting to shrink a little now, but usually that undecideds 10 to 15%. It's frequently up to 20, 23%, 25% in some polls. It's it's a big number. And that's what I really want to be sort of jumping in there and say, well, if you're undecided, hey, what have you got to lose? Go for Martin Langford. Go for Democracy New Zealand. And, and I, I should just most of the time say that, and I probably should do it with a cheeky grin at the same time and say, hey, it's not a wasted vote. It's a good vote if you're undecided. And certainly do vote. So, you know, that perhaps I should jump in with that a lot more now in the last mm. few days. The Taxpayers Union visited recently and did an yes. event up at the Pookie Tap. Did you get an invite, Martin? No, well, I got an invite to sit and listen. So we paid tip, we paid for our tickets to go and listen. Um, no, they decided that our percentage of popularity was not sufficient for us to warrant a seat at the table. So uh, democracy, and we, I'll be very careful what I say. We were advised not to make too much rumble on the evening and and not to to um, disrupt the presentation by by being a bit boisterous in the background. So I and a, and a group of volunteers went. We were all branded up. Um, and we we sat in the bar and we listened to to the talk, um, but no, we were not invited to take part because we we weren't popular enough. And we warned that if we'd made if we made too much trouble, the same would go carte blanche across the rest of the country. So no other candidate from Democracy New Zealand would be considered. So we just thought, mm, okay. Um, so, I mean, I would be disappointed with that. I mean, I think because let's face it, in most electorates, there isn't a huge number of people running from, I mean, some electorates, there's only two. Um, And other electorates, there could be sort of up to six. What harm is it to have, I mean, everybody there on the stage? And one of the one of the the presenters afterwards came past and talked to me, and he said, "Oh, he said I was really expecting you to, to to make far more of a disruption tonight." He said, "I was oh, I was most surprised that you didn't." And it's like, oh, hang on, <laughs> we'd been given a, a warning not to be disruptive, I and mean, we wouldn't have, you know, we didn't heckle. I mean, that, that's it wasn't the it wasn't the place for heckling. It was just to show a presence of us being yeah. there, and people knew that. And I, I got quite. And a that's few to be fair, Martin. Afterwards. That's not your style anyway. So I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't see you as a heck my friend. Very, very, I'd have to script it. I would have to script it. I say. Hear ye, hear ye. Get a bell out. Yeah. People afterwards came up and chatted. And we had, we had because because we were there, we, we we got some, we got publicity because people coming and talk to me and say, oh, yeah, I heard you couldn't get up there. But and then just having a genuine, mm. genuinely good chat about things. So that was actually quite good for us that way as well. We weren't heard on stage on the forum, but people were talking afterwards um, in, in the social the social sphere afterwards, which was good. Yeah, was and good. I think actually you probably would have found that that would have been vastly more effective, I would have thought. Of course, they did a poll leading into that, and there is certainly oh. an appetite for change in Napier. And I know that I've been really critical and concerned about vote splitting because, of course, that's how we ended up with the Napier candidate, for the Labour Napier candidate initially. Right. Uh, there is certainly an appetite for change. So 37% for Nimmin currently, 28 for little Nashy clone, as I like to call him, Mark yes. Hutchinson. Yep. Really, they're not very imaginative, are they? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he's a very nice chap, but yeah. I just, on the surface of it, I looked at that and I thought, and they, they did the same uh, in East Coast as well. It's like, okay, you obviously thought a hill-dwelling middle-aged white dude is what Napier people want, and up on the East Coast they obviously like, they, they thought, oh, yes, queer Māori, that's what's going to win the day yes. in the East Coast. It's just like, really, guys? 
Anyway. Was, was a nice guy. I mean, but he, he called me disingenuous yesterday. So uh, I was oh. up on the stage at um, at senior citizens meeting because I dared to say that that the health system was not. He said that we have one health system and it's going in one direction. And I, I stood up and started to give my talk on something and said, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but what I've been hearing, we are definitely hearing about a, a split, a two tier system and, you know, people being put in two directions when they go to the doctor, you know, which way you're going to be funded. And he just, he just burst out. Oh, that's being very disingenuous. And I thought, oh, no, I can't, I don't agree with that. Mm. Yeah. This is one of the questions I had for you about that poll. Um, all the information I saw in that poll is from a candidacy point of view. Did they actually poll? Because Nimmin polled at 37%, Hutchinson at 28 Undecideds at 18 which is a yeah. big number, as yeah. you said. But they didn't actually poll for any of the other individual candidates. So did you actually, did they supply you with that number? Did they give you a read of I believe I was mentioned. I better check on it. At 2%. Does that make sense? I think 2% was mentioned for me. Okay. I think it was 1%. Okay. And I think that they sort of went, that Martin Langford, 2%. And then it went down to 1%, 1%, 1% for the for the other candidates. So it's like, oh, okay. At least I've got, I'm a double that. But Over the I, I'm, I'm just grabbing all the undecideds at that point and saying, well, that, that doesn't put me too badly. No, <laughs> no. It, I mean, I, I guess yeah. it's always been perceived as a bit of a two-horse race. But yes. it, last time you said that this for you is not just a one-trick pony. You are now looking at this long-term. Is that still the case? Absolutely. Um, we're still we're still looking, you know, the practice is um, up and available. Um, I'm still working four days, but we've we've got the plan. And I've, I've told the party board that, that we've got our plan, which will be to, to keep, if we don't get in this time, or I don't get in this time, that it's for next time. It is, we, we'll work hard, we'll keep going, um, we'll pull back on the work somewhat at the dental practice. But and spend more of our time concentrating on getting the party name out and, and promoting the party and getting ready for the next election. Mm. Yeah, definitely still on for that. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, six months out from Gabrielle, ah. what's now the word on the ground from local constituents in terms of recovery, where they're moving, are people finally getting ahead, are they still in limbo? What's your read on things? It's... Uh, still in limbo situation for many people. Um, by drips and drabs, we're hearing of people who are getting into rental properties with their families, which is great. Uh, we've we've been in contact through the dinner club, which is a, a Friday evening um, get together meal that we help provide at a, a local church. And people from there are sort of just drifting off now because oh, we've got a rental house. We're 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 in our own home in in the suburbs. So some some of the families have improved. They've moved out from them the motel situation, which we were finding unbearable. Um, but there are still others who are still definitely in limbo. Found uh, they put a, a, a removable accommodation onto their property so they could be there to to help tidy. Then the councils turn up and say, "Oh, you can't have that. That's an extra dwelling. You're not allowed to have that." So there's still the bureaucracy hitting them. Even I'm sorry. So uh, yep. let's just go back a second there. So you've got people who are trying to clean up and clear property, they've gone and gotten themselves like either a little prefab or a tiny home to pop yep. on their property so yep. they can be there for security, cleanup, supervision and the like. Yeah. And council are coming in and saying, no, you can't do that. So so people have, yeah, so uh, I'm trying to work out whether it would be council, but some official has come in and said that's not allowable, that, you know, so that's it's ridiculous. It, it does seem ridiculous and it seems to kick people, when you're down, why not kick them even further and say, oh, 
Um, so that's what we've we've had feedback from people that that's happened to them and 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 to their son, you know, their families because they've got extended families and saying that's what they tried to do. And and so whether they, I, I think there's there's a feeling say, well, we'll just ignore it for the moment. We'll just carry on because it's there, and we'll wait for someone to push the point to the next, you know, the next infringement notice or, or whatever needs to be presented to them. But it, it does seem a, a yes a sad state of affairs when people get that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've been quite concerned about just looking about town is the number of business closures. Mm. Have you noticed that? Have you peaked yeah. that? Yeah. It, I mean, it's a hard road to hoe with a small business at the moment. Mm. And it is, it's quite, you walk through the, um, you know, Taradale is our local. So I, I go up through there and see through there. If again, you see the, the, the spaces and people have moved to a different place, but the old place is still empty. Uh, same in town. And it's, it is, it's, um, we need something to, to, to push the, the smaller mm. business. We, we really do need something on that, which would be nice. Um, essential. It's essential. I mean, we went, uh, we went to Palmerston North the other weekend. <laughs> there were a few places empty there as well. I mean, they've got a nice shop. They did have a nice shopping area through there. It was Saturday. It wasn't quite as bustling as we were hoping it would be. Um, and they've got some fairly um, very good shopping streets, lovely frontages. But then you've got the the, the spaces which are there, and, mm. and we need the small businesses. We need to get people out. We need to get the, the economy going, so people have got the money to go and keep these small boutique businesses. So it's not a case of you see the great big names, the, the big shops. It's nice to go to a place in Palm in Palmerston North had some little boutiquey shops, and it's like that's what we need. And Napier City Centre was was what that was was really good mm. for you could go into napier and you could find all these lovely little boutique shops different they weren't just the chain stores yes mm. you had the chain stores next door but then you had some quirky little shop next door which was and that's what makes shopping a, a really pleasurable experience for most people and well, that's, that's what drives people to visit napier yeah well that is one of the things that sets napier apart because we don't have a mall in napier a lot oh, of that yeah. really big box, what I call category killer stores, sit actually out actually on the industrial fringe. They don't sit in the CBD. So we've always had that feel. But, you know, you look at places like Ocean Boulevard, which is now, I think, what, there's one art therapy place left in there now. It's completely desolated. I know talking to a hospitality business owner that just recently, and it's someone offered to take their lease. So they were like, right, we're out of here. And they were saying that, Whilst COVID was really tough, yeah, it was Gabrielle that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yes, I mean, I mean we've got you know hospitality is, is is suffering without the tourism, and we're we're about to enter into the, uh, the the cruise ship season. But I mean, that's we don't know how much actually comes from the cruise cruise ships because they they want to go off and and do the tours. Do they actually go through the um, the shops in town and actually spend their dollar there, their discretionary dollar in town? And we 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 have been stuffed. Um, I was talking with a lady in in the centre town, and she said that since Gabrielle, that has really really been a, a terrible for her. She's had to let someone else go from her shop. She's keeping the shop running on her own, and she's running herself ragged. Mm. Um, you know, the, 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 I had quite a few conversations. I, I've delivered leaflets and talked to people through the whole city centre, and it is, it, it's, it's not a, a lot of them are not very optimistic. They are quite upset, and um, and they're getting tired. Mm. And I'm also talking with you know some of the the people who are working in the shops. A lady was in her seventies. She said, "Well, I'm tired. I'm running the business. I'm, I'm working as hard as I can, but then I need to because I'd like to retire, but I just can't. I can't afford to retire." Yeah, and I think that there has been that hangover from 
you know, you finally got over COVID. We headed into this year, 2023, with a sense of optimism. What I, with the businesses that I'm involved with, one of the things that I've certainly noticed is that we're into the space now where it's the ongoing effects of the supply chain and sourcing and staffing and the access to facilities that we're starting to feel all these issues that they're all very real, but you're not hearing about these in the media. So I have an event that I run at the end of August. I have all these visitors come and they were asking how things were going. And so, you know, I'd say to them, well, you know, we've actually had to be very nimble and quite uh, flexible about how we changed and did different things within our business in order to navigate. And we've still got ongoing issues and they're all Gabrielle related. And people, they they forget and they move on. And I think for all of us here, every, not a single person, and I don't believe, in this region has not been touched, you know, either personally or directly or by someone close to them with those effects and those ongoing effects. What do you believe, whoever gets the candidacy, and let's face it, it would take an act of God, I think, for you, my friend, but um, <laughs> you never you. know. Those who are with the Lord start praying now. Stranger things have happened. Um, yes. But for the who, who got the candidacy, what do you think should be their first priority for the people of Napier come November? It's got to be talking, talking, talking on the national stage that Napier still needs help because, as you say, it's gone quiet and it's pushing that national drive to say, yes, money is is tight, budgets have gone in different directions, but we still need to be directing resources, we still need to be directing funding, we still need to be looking after after Napier um, or the area, so, you know, the greater Napier area because of what's gone on. Um, and not uh, not to not to ignore it and say, oh, it's it's on the road to recovery, because that seems to be the comment that comes back from central government, I'd like to call them, Oh, the recovery is going well. We're we're doing all we can. Everyone's pulling out all the stops, and you you think you're not actually quite pulling out all the stops because there are people who are still, as we've said earlier, still in limbo, still suffering, still not being told the the the, um, the gradation the grading of of the housing. It's still up in the air. People are still being told, "Oh, we'll get to you. We'll work that out, and and we'll talk about that." We need tourism for Napier and we need to have our motels and hotels free and able to, to take in tourists. We need that for, for, for the economy here. What we don't need is the, the and unfortunately after Gabrielle, that got even worse because the accommodation was taken up with people who, who had nowhere else to go. The, we're trying to, those people are now leaving. But the, the situation in a lot of the motels is that they're not there for tourists. Uh, they've got the, um, the, the, the homeless or we've got the people who are from from housing, um, should we say housing corp? You've got people living in motels when the motels really need to have tourists. We need to be pushing mm. Napier, and we need to be making it a vibrant, a vibrant area to get people to get excite people and make people want to come and visit again. Have um, you done a back of the envelope, uh, Pricey, of how many motels and hotel? Well, it'd be motels predominantly. Yeah. I'm assuming are in social housing. No, not as yet. No. That's something I. Perhaps I should get when I, when I get a spare five minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll go around and have a chat and talk. Um, and it, but that would be a useful thing to be done. And we, uh, there's a um, business association meeting coming up shortly, and that's something that perhaps uh, would be a very, very important um, aspect to, to go in with some information on that. 
And so I yeah. there's some I, homework for me. That's good. Because I know that again, the, the event that I hold, I mean I've this is it's the and it's this is the thirteenth year that I've done it. I had the two year COVID years off, but so I've been doing it a long time. And yeah. I've always had it at exactly the same venue. It's always rolled through. I have it at the end of August. It's a time of year where nothing else is rolling and shaking in the bay. Yeah. So it works in quite well. And of course the marathon rescheduled because <sighs> of uh Gabrielle and it scheduled for the same weekend. And of course I got stuck with I had a lot of people. I often get a big flux of people in early, but I always get a little clump at the end. And often that clump at the end is the cream for me. You know, they're the ones that uh, go, oh, is it still too late to come? Because you always get those people that don't know what they're doing. Yep. And you get that little extra 10 or 15% bump towards the end. Well, I got zero, none of that. And the reason I got none of that is because there was no accommodation. And that was the one thing I got back. We can't get flights. We can't get accommodation. We can't get in. Um, do you know anywhere we can stay? And it was because it, it was A, taken up with a marathon. But more than that, I know the marathon people were struggling because so much of it was taken up uh, with housing in what I call permanent, you know, semi-permanent short stay, which it yeah. can be social housing or still people suffering from Gabrielle. So yeah. it is a real chicken and egg, isn't it? You know, yeah. we need the people to come. We need them to know that we're open and vibrant and happy and and it's great. Like everyone that came to my event had a wonderful time. And they're like, oh, it's, we didn't. It's so good. I mean, people, why aren't people coming back? It's like, well, yeah. it's also a bit tricky to get them to come and stay. That's that, and we, we've got um, Robbie Williams is is coming to the mission later in, in November, but we can see it on social media. People saying, hey, we've got tickets. Can has anyone got a, a house we could we can uh, if we got accommodation, bed and breakfast? Can can we get a room? Because they just can't get the accommodation. They want to come. And, and they've got the tickets. So this is, he's mid-November, I think. Mm. So, you know, we missed out with Sting because Sting was just after the after the cyclone. So that was a, a big, and, but if we, we're still having people trying to get accommodation for, for the next big concerts, which which are great for the, great for the region, great for us. Uh, I, I still look at, you know, the Blue Water because the Blue Water, I don't know. Someone said, oh, the Blue Water will be coming back to being a motel. Oh, it'll take six months. Well, I've got an, a feeling that that has been bought up. And it's, I think that's a far longer term solution that the mm. government has chosen at the moment than, than it was deemed at the beginning. I think it was potentially going to be a, a short term. But I think by buying it and, and taking over, that is now a far longer solution for them to keep the blue water down in down in Hariri. Mm. Oh, did they buy it off our rugby, believe, did they? Yeah, I believe that's oh. that's the, the case. There you go. Well, yeah. yeah, and I mean again, speaking of businesses, I mean Taki Timu's next door. Yeah. Which, you know, that was a multi-million dollar business yeah. that, you know, between COVID and another financial headwinds. Yeah. I mean that, you know, a lot of jobs were lost there. Cavalier. Yes. Yeah, oh, a lot yeah. of jobs lost there. That's Gabri That's a Gabrielle. Um, I mean, and hopefully, you know, um, Panpack is. I mean, Panpack's not um, functioning at that, that moment either. That's you know still down. Ravens down. So you think of another two big employees on the waterfront, which 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 got mm. damaged severely by the the cyclone and are not up to. Well, I, I don't know what's what's what even the um, percentage you say they're working at at the moment. But it's um, you know, we've we've been hit by a sideswiped, absolutely sideswiped, and and it's going to take mm. a long time to, to to get us back on our feet. And then central government need to know that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I at least hope with cruise season because 
a lot of people just just get off to walk around the central city. And the one thing that I will give the team at the Napier City Council, they have got the most amazing parks and rec team because every spring, and I can see they're out there doing all the plantings at the moment, and they've well they've done them a good chunk of them last month, and they always this time of year work so hard putting the spit and polish on the city to have it looking a million dollars when that season starts and the last you know week or so we've had this beautiful weather and and it is starting to you, you I am getting definitely that lovely spring summer vibe starting to come and I think the first ships arrive in October and yeah. you know they gradually gradually increase through November with the peak of them running from um Christmas through to the end of or well, the middle of February is when the bulk of them come through and I ha- I have to say I'm quite confident that if you were a cruise passenger getting off in Napier to walk off and have a look around what you would get, see is something really quite beautiful. So that warms my heart and I feel really yeah. good about that. And also unlike before where they, after those those ones that came through after Gabrielle at the tail end of the season, at least now they will be able to go out and rejig tours and do wineries and stuff in those areas that weren't quite so affected and roads being open and access not you know being available so we've got that and hopefully their positive experiences will you know keep that international flow of people coming through so yeah i mean i'm I'm amazed you know we've been here 26 years and the improvement on the waterfront is is Mm. amazing they're you know the 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 sunken gardens which they changed to become uh, more accessible and they've it really is. I mean, you walk along the waterfront on a sunny day and you've got those views and the the, the city shines. That's what it is. It's got the colours mm. make the city shine. And when it's a sunny day, the whole place just seems to glow. And you yeah. get that really good feeling. You stand there and you go, boy, are we lucky. We're lucky yeah. to live here. And you're looking out across the Pacific and you're saying, this is just what a wonderful place. I remember one of the Art Deco weekends and the sun was gone had gone down behind so you're in that twilight but the, there was the the colors the colors of the sea the colors of the sound shell because they, they put those muted colors all the, the the buildings were glowing in that sort of early evening light and it was just it was magical it really mm. was the place comes alive it really does yeah it does uh now before we disappear how is things going for matt in northland he's very positive um he's got he's got uh, Liao uh, Tilsley had gone up as he's helping up there as well to 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 get the name um out and D- Divergis and uh, Sarah Brewer so there's a there's a there's a team there which every now and again they'll make a foray up into into Northland and help with hoardings and putting signs or helping with the signs and getting out there and getting the name spread going to the markets uh with Matt or uh, at some um, other markets so they're spreading the word and he's positive. I've just seen him. He was down in Wellington. He'd just been to a meeting down there. And I think he's been really, really pushing himself. He's been trying his hardest. And you can start to hear just that his voice, his voice mm-hmm. was slightly quieter than it normally is. And he sort of think, guys, has he, has he been roaring and, and has he worn, starts to wear himself out? So I hope that he's, he's, he's keeping on top of that. And he, at the meetings that we have every week, he's always full. He's up there. He's up loud, mm-hmm. proud. Positive. He's certainly a very um, positive chair. Very positive. But it must be wearing on him because he's got the travel between he's got a large electorate and he's been down to Wellington. He's done most of the country, North and South Islands. And uh, mm. he's gonna be his energy levels, he's just gotta be keeping those up. 
So in your weekly meetings, has there been an expression of frustration with further fractionation within those minor parties? I mean, Ted Johnson has now left the New Conservatives and set up a party. Uh, Finally, uh, New Zealand Loyal and uh, the Defence Alliance are now registered parties along with the Leighton Bakers. So that's all now confirmed. You've got there, I mean... It's a very, very crowded space, all yeah. fighting over a very, very small slice of the pie, Martin. Has Matt sort of voiced any frustration around that? He's he's very good at that. He just says, look, let's concentrate on the prize. Mm. Let's keep on going on with our, let's not get distracted. Let's not enter into um, discussions. And he said that, don't, don't start making comments about, oh, this party's done that, that party's doing that. He said, let's concentrate on what we've done. We've, we're doing it well. We're getting the name out there. Concentrate on what we're doing. Do it well. Let the others distract each other um, and keep just putting to people, this is what we stand for. This is what will happen if we, when, when, let's say, when we get in. Um, and let's not get distracted. Accept that these things happen. Move forwards and just aim for, for, for the election. Just keep going. Excellent. On that message, thank you very much. This has been Martin Langford, Democracy New Zealand Napier candidate here on Reality Check Radio. Don't disappear, more great content still to come, including Marty from Media Matters and Woke News of the Week. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as i've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. So good to catch up with Martin. I really look forward to seeing him continue to campaign beyond this election. Speaking of the election, make sure you check out our elections page on the website at realitycheck.radio, or better yet, download the app. RCR has conducted over 200 interviews relating to local, national and international politics, including over 150 concerning our 2023 general election. If you want to check out any of the election content and replays, the best way is to download the app, go to replays and hit the election 2023 tab. All interviews are there, easy to listen to, download and share. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive Honest Media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. 
The following interview contains topics that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. If you would like to contact us in regards to any of our content, please email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. Joining me now is Mike Shaw, spokesperson for Massive. So this does sound fairly massive, Mike. Uh, Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Excellent. So for our listeners, what is Massive? Massive. Okay, Massive um, is, uh, I think, the technical term, an acronym, an acronym for, and the, um, the, the letters in the name mean Men Against Sexual Violence. And then also um, speak out, intervene, and educate. So we throw those through those together and uh, came up with massive. Uh, so back oh, several years ago now, um, Calvin Davis, when he first came into to Parliament as an opposition MP, he had a bit more time on his hands, I would say, and um, he particularly in the north here, he got a few guys together and began to talk about some of our concerns in that um, area of sexual violence, the the case up in um, Kaitaia with the principal. Um, I don't know if you remember that, but the uh, principal of one of the small rural schools had just been charged with numerous counts of sexual abuse of some of his, well, many of his students. So, yeah, Kelvin, Kelvin was quite motivated. He joined with a few other guys. We had a few events. We got some awareness of uh, sexual violence issues, and that's that's basically where it started. What is your mission now? So there is, I've got some press releases here, which we'll cover yeah. off in a minute, but what is the mission and the goal that you have in terms of getting the word out? Okay, well, the principles and the vision that was laid down a few years ago was excellent, really resounded with me and, and some of the other blokes up here. But as Kelvin got busier with, with the politics, there was a bit of a a, lead, a leadership gap, I guess. And uh, so currently we're in the, the place of reforming the vision, resetting it, um, getting other groups established in other towns and communities and um, spreading the message really and also getting into some of the more practical sides of things rather than just events actually making some changes shifting men's thinking shifting behavior lobbying you know various various sort of channels various prongs of attack if you want to put it that way Mm. now these press releases that you put out was around the sentencing of the jazz brothers in christchurch yeah i like many new zealanders saw when that happened, when that that case started, and the scale of offending involved in that case, we were all rightfully shocked. Is something like the Jazz Brothers case an isolated incident in New Zealand, or is it more widespread than we believe? We would like to think it was an isolated incident, but I I think that the reality is it is more widespread, that culture of um, predatory behaviour, particularly around the area of alcohol and, and drugs, that kind of mindset of women being objects for sex, sexual gratification, that, that kind of thing. I think it is a lot more widespread in our culture and it goes back several generations. And so this is the sort of stuff that we want to 
address as men. We want to get the message clear that these kind of negative sexual behaviors, you know, we we can totally within men's control to eliminate them and, and eradicate that kind of thinking and, and behavior. Yeah, the, probably the, the encouraging thing, if there's anything out of the Jazz Brothers uh, case, was the sentencing. I was I was quite depressed <laughs> a day or two before the sentencing. I wasn't expecting the judge to hand down 17 and 16 and a half years. And the reason why I wasn't expecting that was we'd seen quite a lot of weak or soft sentencing going on, even the, even the week prior to that. So it was kind of refreshing to see a decent sentence being handed out. And I think that is one of the things that we're promoting is that the sentencing for sexual crime in New Zealand needs to be toughened up, not so much because of the, the punitive um, aspect, you know, it's, it's not so much um, that, but to get the right messaging across, if there's anything men do understand, we understand the little adage, you do the crime, you do the time. And when there's soft sentencing, it communicates a message that this is something you can get away with. This is something that uh, is not that important. So, no, we were, we were really wrapped with that sentencing. I've been in contact with the dad, one of the dads. He, obviously, he, he would have loved to send the whole, the maximum 20 years. But to get 17 and, and 16 and a half, you know, I could hear the, hear the celebration in behind him on that day. It was great. Mm. Uh, really refreshing. I mean, I feel that men have got a lot of challenges ahead of them at the moment, particularly culturally. I mean, there has been a lot of emasculation of men and mm. an over-feminization. Do you think that, in a way, this aberrant behavior is a almost a primal frustration from men with that? Or, I mean, do you see a change in behavior with men due to, like, in the current climate to what it was, say, many years ago? Or... Or is it the internet? I mean, what are the some of the drivers now to this sort of behaviour that may not have been there, say, thirty years ago? Well, I think it's. I actually think it's always been there. You know, uh, I'm I'm fifty nine years old. Uh, I remember, you know, I don't I don't drink now, but back back in my younger days, um, yeah, I was part of that go to the party scene. There has been in our male culture, a connection between alcohol and sex and the, kind of the, the idea that that's somehow acceptable, that if, um, if, the, if the girl's drunk, if she's friendly, you know, sorry to be crude, but, you know, she wants it. Mm. Yeah. We, yeah, we it, have, that doesn't constitute consent, but it, no, yeah. No, but that's sort of been ingrained. Um, I mean, these guys were, what, in their 30s? It's kind of been ingrained in our, in our, in our Kiwi culture that, you know, that that's kind of acceptable to go out Get, you know, have a few drinks, look for the easy lay, that kind of thing. You know, we had we had nicknames for, you know, various drinks, you know, gin was the leg opener, that kind of stuff. So I do actually think that it's always been there. The date rape drugs as another layer of deviancy to that. And the internet pornography adds is an aggravating factor as well. So that's that's all that's all there. You know, like most men, you know, most men we're not rapists, we're not we're not deviants, but there is that underlying kind of locker room, if you want to call it, you know, attitude that needs to change. And mm. I think, I think, um, you know, you talk, you've talked about the feminization of men. Yeah, that's that's that is a problem in in the sense of uh, some men feel powerless and therefore they act out in a way to try and regain power. But also, I got I got to say, the overall attitudes around consent 
I think overall have improved and uh, the, the younger generation coming through, there's some improvements in, in attitudes, but the pornography undermines and sort of works against that too. About 80% of all pornography now is denigrating a woman, has aspects of violence and that kind of stuff in it. It's interesting you bring that up because I've had interviews with Denise Ritchie, as you know, and yeah. but also most recently Ali Marie Diamond from Wahine Toa Rising. And she said porn has a massive impact because she said the change in the pornography and the access to the pornography has created an unrealistic expectation in men's minds of what constitutes sexual intercourse or a sexual mm. relationship. And that is a concern, I think, as parents. I mean, I've got two teenage sons and I've said to them about the porn and both my boys have said, oh, mum, it's everywhere. Yeah. That's right. So 11 years old now is when when children are accessing pornography. It's a lot of it's violent. It's den, it's denigrating, and that you know scientifically, you know, can be shown that that actually rewires your brain, sends those neural patterns, and it's just unhealthy. Um, my children are telling me about friends of theirs whose husbands can't can't sexually perform because of the damage that pornography has done. It's all gone all messed up. So in an interview a couple of weeks ago, the interviewer, you know, sort of went down the down the path of, you know, are you are you looking for censorship? Are you looking for change of law? I think that's somebody else's battle. But what we want to communicate to our male peers is that pornography is something that you need to be aware of as, as harmful and it is something that you can control. You can limit your access of porn, to pornography. You can eradicate it. Uh, if you choose to. Uh, not always easy because of the addictive nature of it, the dopamines and all that kind of stuff, but we need to get rid of that idea that it's a harmless activity. It's, mm. it's not, yeah. Sorry, it's wrong on several levels, yeah. Mm. You've got a quote here, forget excuses, men choose rape. We need to change our Kiwi culture. Drugs, alcohol and sex don't go together. Women and children are not objects of sexual gratification to be preyed upon. This is a male problem and as men we need to rise to the challenge and address this courageously together. Mm. Well, that's right. I mean, we would like to think that the Jazz Buzzers brothers are just some sort of, you know, weird aberration that, uh, you know, you'll get there from time to time, you know, uh, a couple of sickos. But uh, if we're to believe that statistics said one in four women will experience sexual abuse sometime in their life, that's a lot of men primarily who have crossed a, li a line and, and, uh, and gone into an area of violation and, and uh, criminality. That's more than just a handful of blokes. So. But the more disturbing number, I think, within that one in four is that 97% of the men are known to the victim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the myth is that the sexual perpetrator is, you know, the creepy jazz brothers or the creepy the creepy guy with the trench coat or that kind or that kind. That's the myth. The reality is these are our friends, our brothers, our uncles, our fathers, our grandfathers, you know, men we know, men that we can be a positive influence on uh, by the way we behave and by the way the messaging that we give to each other and pull each other up on our behaviours and start to shift that attitude of entitlement. Yeah. Mm. You're so you're in the far north and which is a stunning part of the country. Mm. You're you're up there and the sense of community is always something that sets provincial New Zealand apart. 
But do you think in recent years the disol- well the dissolving of that sense of community has actually driven a lot of this offending underground, or men aren't able to have those really healthy mateship relationships with other peers, which then model positive good behaviour. So then they're turning to the internet, they're turning to porn, and when an opportunity presents itself, they make poor decisions. Are you seeing that out in the wider community away from the cities, or is that just something that is could be happening anywhere? Could be happening anywhere. We have, I think probably we have some of our, our um, you know, more uh, rural and unique type situations situations in, in the small towns in terms of intergenerational things that go on and that need to be addressed. But I think it's I think it's it's not really a provincial city type of an issue in terms of sexual offending. Mm. It's not it's not an ethnic thing. Um, you know, once again, you know, we'd like to we'd like to sit in our porch in Parnell and say, you know, it's those um, rough guys from the East Coast or it's those um, mm. Maoris from up north, you know, they need to buck up their ideas. But, you know, when you see ones like, um, uh, what's the businessman, what was his name? Briley, business roundtable, uh, well-respected businessman, sexual offender, the other the other fellow with the arts thing recently. It touches all social economic areas, all ethnicities, and the, the common the common factor is men. So whether whether we're a bunch of guys, you know, at the rugby league club having a having a few beers, or whether we're um, you know corporate business office and down open something, we need to. These are the things that we need to um, address as men, educate ourselves, and believe that we can change and that mm. we can influence. There's, there's too much silence, too much collusion, too much. You know, we just keep to our keep to mm. ourselves and won't won't have those uncomfortable conversations. Where do you start having those conversations? Our strategy is to have some events. Like we recently had an event, 60, 60 guys came to it. We made it safe for them. We were the, kind of the topic of the event was um, sexual trafficking and uh, what one of my friends is doing in that space overseas. So it's a little bit safer. It's not so personal. But you get together and um, you hear the, hear the presentation and then with the meal and the drink and whatnot, uh, you, you start to have those one-on-one deeper conversations. We've got to also recognise that often, or more often than we realise that men are victims of sexual abuse and there needs to be places they can go. So one of the groups that we support, is, I think it's called uh, Male Survivors Aotearoa, and that's for male victims of sexual abuse. So you can start to own some of your own stuff and get some healing, get some support in that area. So, it's just making it, you know, like years ago was, you know, drink, drink driving was, was not considered very serious, but we've changed that. Years ago, smoking cigarettes was, was considered normal and we've changed that mentality. So, you know, we, we're hopeful that we can actually begin to change mentalities by having consistent conversations, consistently putting a new standard in, getting men to adopt that thinking uh, speaking to the younger generation, changing the older generation's thoughts about about these issues. So we're hopeful uh, that we can change things. It's not in, in, inevitable that we continue to have these high rates of abuse. It's um, it's totally changeable, but it's men are the key. Mm. So men men need to be part of the conversation. So too many times you'll have a seminar on um, sexual violence or something, and it'll be filled with women, which is great. It's us, the brothers, we need to pull each other up, hold each other to account, commit to commit to change, commit to better behaviours. 
So if anyone out there is listening to this and they're wanting to get more information about what it is that you are doing, where do they need to go to find that information? Yeah, well, at this stage, um, Maria, we're, we're really an organic organisation. We we do have a Facebook page, uh, Men Against Sexual Violence, massive. Uh, I'm, I'm not even the admin on it. <laughs> but uh, we're so organic at this stage. We don't have an office. We, we're under-resourced. But this, it's almost, at this stage, a conversation and an idea. It's forming and growing and gaining momentum. So the best thing they could probably do to be is to text me. And, uh, and we and, will have those details. So if anyone yeah, wants to get those details yeah, for Mike, mm. contact us at inbox at realitycheck.radio and the wonderful Liz will get that out to you so we can make yeah. sure we can do that for you, Mike. Great. Because that's what, I mean, that's what we literally did with this dad, you know, down in Christchurch. Yeah, you know, called him up. Hey, brother, he, you know, hey, good on you. You're standing strong with your daughter. You know, we want to support you. So we're able to help him with the press, some of the press releases, give him some moral support. In a man's context, sometimes it's just the moral support and um, you know, not not so much the professional therapist or the professional counsellor, you know, but just a mate that mm. comes along and says, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk with you in this unit, bro. And we're gonna yeah, we're gonna try and get justice for your daughter or we'll get you that help that you need. It's those kind of conversations that men seem to respond to. And it's a little hard, a little hard to quantify it, you know, as to how effective it is and that kind of thing. But the clinical model has some limits. And uh, so we're, yeah, this one's, we're not, we're not professionals. We're not, we're not trained. We have access to all those guys. So we can say, hey, you know, we can connect you up with so-and-so and or we can get you on the ACC or whatever and um, get, uh, we, we know a detective you can talk to, that sort of thing. But it's just having some other men who are not judging you and are going to walk walk with you. Yeah, yeah. The other aspect, Marie, that's 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 out there is you know we've got a lot of good guys, fathers, grandfathers, uncles whose um, you know children or, or nieces or whatever have have been um, offended against, and there's an anger in these men as to what to do about it, and we want to channel channel that anger into a productive way that's um, not harmful to themselves or anybody else, but actually helps them on their journey of, of healing and for their family. So there's mm. some really good things happening and some models we're kind of developing. Absolutely, because I guess too, as you said, channeling that is important because there would be a certain level of guilt, wouldn't there, if they yeah. found out that someone close to them had had an experience like that, that they felt that they couldn't protect them. But it isn't about that. There is no blame in that respect, is there? It's a You need no. to yeah. Yeah, ensure that they have the ability to, as you said, channel that energy and um, yeah. into something positive. Oh, look, it's been, it's been great to chat to you. This is Mike Shaw from Massive, Men Against Sexual Violence. As he said, check them out on their Facebook page. Or if you want his phone number, do send us either a text to 2057 or an email to inbox at radio. Hey, look, thank you for giving up your time this morning, Mike. I'll let you get back to that good old uh, far north sunshine. Uh, the winterless north. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. Thanks to Mike for taking the time to catch up from the far north this morning. Time for some more music. In 2003, the smash hit debut album from the British teen turned music on its head. The rich, powerful vocals that would lead you to believe that she was much, much older than her very young teenage years. 
Here's Joss Stone and Some Kind of Wonderful here on RCR. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to www.realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. You are with Counterculture here with Maureen. Of course, it is now Media Matters time with my partner in crime, Marty Gibson. Good morning. Good morning, Marie. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I do have to apologise for listeners. I'm off and on all morning. I have got uh, builders next next door to me. So if you hear some aberrant banging, I've tried my hardest to dumb down the construction noise, but I can only do so much. I do apologize to listeners for that, but you are much more exciting this morning because you had the weekend away at the NZDSOS conference. Do tell. Yes, it, it was really great. And about a thousand people there, fantastic speakers. There was the UK cardiologist, Dr. Asim Malhotra, just a really pleasant crowd of a thousand people at uh, Eden Park. No media uh, apart from Reality Check Radio. So it was really nice to meet some of the people face to face who I've been speaking with over the past few months, including Paul Brennan, I met for the first time, and Peter Williams. Yeah, it was very interesting. But at the same time, when you see information presented to you that's so compelling and really just begs a whole series of questions, I've said this again and again, I'm going to keep saying it. It's not a case of, hey, this is right. It's a case of, hey, we really need to have a discussion about this. Whether it's climate change, where, you know, Christopher Luxon's saying we're fixated on zero carbon or the science is settled on Florida. If we can't have Karl Popper's falsifiability as a condition of science, and often this is talked about by people who've got no qualifications in science and you'd have to conclude no understanding of the scientific method. If we can't have a talk about, well, when is a theory falsifiable? At what point, you know, do Mm -hmm. we say, hey, that wasn't safe and effective? Because they knew, it seems, if you look at some of the agreements coming up that are still withheld in New Zealand, but the ones that have been released from various countries, South Africa being the latest, they described it as an aspirational treatment. It really is a jarring contrast with the government's safe and effective yeah. Uh, mantra. Yeah. So, yeah, there were, there were great speakers. Did you feel it was an uplifting event? Like, did you come away from there? There, there was a collective being together in that group and the energy of like, oh, we're not alone. Yeah, you, you always get that mm. when you've been gaslit as hard as we have. You've been characterised as being low information or uh, paranoid or angry or right-wing or any mm. number of things that uh, you're not. Yeah, we're going to touch meet, on a bit of that in a minute too, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, you meet people and they're also not. They're just concerned about the wisdom of injecting pregnant women with a gene therapy that's been tested maybe on 20 mice, 20 pregnant mice, because it wasn't ethical to test it on pregnant women. And yet we've got Ashley Bloomfield waving them through. And you know, then you've got people like Dr. Matt Sheldon, who was deregistered for urging caution to his pregnant patients, saying, you know, maybe hold off. It hasn't met the normal standard of testing that is required to inject this into pregnant women. It was uplifting, but it, it was jarring. It's jarring to see that politicians and, and media have really 
circled the wagons and had that sort of talk you see in gangster movies where the the, the leader of the gang says, if, if one of us goes down, we're all going to go down. Nobody talks, everyone walks, yeah. you know. Yeah. Because they're at the point now when they, they're probably knowing that there's enough information out there to justify them at least being charged with something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is actually a theme that we've just, I think, shone in the papers this weekend, and we're going to dive into that in a bit. And, of course, I've just done an interview I covered for Breakfast for Paul on Monday, and I got to interview Dr. Elvin Moss from uh, West Virginia University, and he's a professor of medicine there. And he penned a great article around the effects of overall COVID lockdowns, which warranted a second airing this morning on the show, because I think a lot of my listeners not, may not necessarily have heard that. And you're right, it is that level of, of gaslighting and and also still the absolute belief that they have even in this country, that they did a good job with the COVID response. Well, that's what they say. I mean, Guy Hatchard was another fantastic speaker there, such a gentleman. He was saying, you know, two years ago, the facts that, that it wasn't, it was neither safe nor effective were irrefutable. One of his rallying cries around it was, we need to draw a bigger line with politicians. We've kind of been running along behind the cart saying, well, you know, this or that, but I think what he's saying is we need to confront, I guess, the the extent of, I mean, there's no other word but evil mm. that we're facing, the complete hijack of the media, the medical association, government, to confront what it is we're up against and to be more insistent on that those things are confronted. And as I said, and maybe there's a plausible explanation for it all. I'd love nothing more than that. But when there's the, uh, 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 don't talk about that, and, and that was a theme with a lot of the doctors who were speaking as well. You know, something uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Malhotra said, early on there was a pretty strong signal that something was up. And his contention was basically what happened was we were going through the slow pandemic of heart disease that came from bad diet and uh, a few other factors. statins. I know he's very big yeah. on that. Yeah. Then it was just nudged along with an effect on the heart from this, and, and that tipped a lot of people over the edge who would have gone on to develop heart disease. But he said when when he'd raised this with his colleagues, one of the things a lot of them said was, well, don't, don't say anything. For people who, who have found themselves among others and and labelled as the freedom movement or anti-vaxxers or given whatever label. You know, as the Jews and the gypsies know, whenever the government's blaming you for everything and giving you a, a name that starts with the, it pays to make travel plans. The problem isn't that this has happened or that bureaucrats are driven by self-interest or politicians are driven by a quest for power. It's the cowardice of so many of our countrymen yeah. and women. The, the failure of moral fibre just when we needed it most. And we'd been coasting along with all of this virtue signalling on all sorts of things. And it probably led a lot of us to suppose that, you know, now we were so much more concerned about how other people are feeling, maybe we're more virtuous as a people. It turns out that that's a bit like, you know, when you give kids fluoride and they get a hard layer of enamel and they get occluded cavities. <laughs> It's not as uh, much of a guard against real challenges as we'd hope. 
Yeah. Hatchard, too, he put out a great report on Monday. Now, I, because you're away, I thought I'd be good and maybe dive in, expand my watching a little, and I saw that uh, there was going to be a head-to-head on the nation between Aisha Viral and Shane Retty with our both combined interest in overall general health policy, not just COVID policy. I thought, actually, I wouldn't mind watching that. Oh, I just reminded myself why I don't do these things, Martin. Wasn't far along into it. Partway through, it wasn't that long through, out comes this clanger from her. Post-COVID, over the last three years, we've had some of the lowest excess mortality in the world. So on things that matter, we are doing well. It's really tough. There's just a gulf between those two things, isn't it? The lies that have been told. This is up there when Helen Batusis Harris turning around and saying, oh, no, it stays in the injection site. It doesn't travel. And there'd already been peer-reviewed data on the fact that, oh, yeah, she travels all right, and she goes places where you don't want it to go. Head straight for the ovaries. Yeah, I I just was stunned. So, of course, Hatchard, I can imagine how he would have viewed that. And he then, uh, in his latest, uh, as I said, in the um, Monday piece, he went through and fact-checked. But the thing that upsets me is that that was taken as given Mm. by the host. Well, Ashley Bloomfield said the same thing, patting himself on the back. You know, our our response worked. We were one of the only countries in the world to have a negative excess death. I think it was Guy Hatchard analysed that and said, you know, you can come up with that, but you've got to take one of the years where deaths had already spiked after the first wave of vaxxing and then it dropped off and so it doesn't work unless you follow a trend that comes from before a factor that has altered the Mm. trajectory of of deaths and i mean the reality of it is is that you don't have to believe us or believe ice reveal all you need to do is go and have a look at our world and data and put that information in there and do comparative graphs between uh highly vaccinated western nations and then nations that didn't vaccinate so highly uh and particularly in the western canon so i mean think bulgaria think hungary and even scandinavia for a you know, yeah. and, and actually have a look at some of those numbers and you can see that whatever it is that places like the United States, Canada, um, New Zealand, Australia and Great Britain did, it's uh, not boding us well in terms Seems of Seems to have hurt a lot of people and, mm. and certainly tanked reproduction, which was already on the ropes at about 1.6 before all of this happened and now... Yeah. And now the Japanese, actually, I I read that the Japanese are now very, very concerned about the rapid, sharp increase in their ageing population. Their birth rate is something like 1.3, and they've had a huge campaign to get as many older, retired Japanese back into the workforce because the young ones are just simply not coming through to replenish them. Mm. So they're looking down the barrel of a crisis here. So overall, you um, uplifted, enjoyed the conference, had a great weekend away, and your cup is full of good information. <laughs> well, I've, I'm still analysing the information. I'm hoping to to scorch off because I recorded uh, a lot of it. And um, there's a huge volume, which means it, it does require a bit of time to settle out. My notes, such as they are, are mostly on what point of my recording there's a good point to be mined out. So there's a little bit of a little bit of uh, mining that I have to do. But yeah, I mean, there was a 
gentleman who was with the Australian Medical Professional Society. And, and Australians, as always, have got a far better defined group of people who are going, yeah, mate, what are you talking about? You know, than Kiwis do. They've got about 600 members, whereas I think New Zealand, uh, the NZDSOS has got about 200 maybe. And a lot of people who say, look, I support what you do, but for obvious reasons I can't. Yeah. I can't be involved because, you know, my wife's just got a black granite bench top that has uh, cost us a fortune and uh, those new car payments can't stop being made. It was a really dense series of lectures. Jodie Bronning is probably the only non-medical person there who, I guess, broke down some of the nefarious stuff happening in uh, some of the agencies that decide whether things are, are safe or not to be let loose on the public and also the manipulation of the media. It was a really good crowd of people, very, mm. very positive, and, and there, was, there was an air that, you know, if we... Um, just keep telling the truth and asking questions. We can break through some of this stuff. So you're feeling a blog coming on. So we'll look forward to that. And actually, uh, I don't know whether you've had a chance to download the new app yet, but it's so much easier on the new app. Yeah, I oh, have it's downloaded it. It's fabulous. Awesome. Honestly, it's like I know that I'm going to gush about this and I know that sounds silly, but if you're somebody like me who repels technology, anything like this that makes your life easier – uh, you will love. And I have to say, if you've not downloaded the new Reality Check Radio app yet, you need to because it will make your listening much easier, being able to share stuff much easier, being able to access things like Marty's blog much easier. It's just... it's yeah. One doesn't like to grumble, but that live player was a dog. Wasn't oh, it? the previous one. Yeah, it was a shocker. The, the number of cutouts and the d difficulty sometimes maintaining the thread of what people were saying when you lose a chunk here and there. It yeah. looks great. As usual, the... Uh, it's an elegant thing. Mm, no, it is really quite wonderful. Something that is very inelegant, though, is definitely the theme. We talked about the theme in politics this week, and we're not going to dive too much into the weeds, but one of the things that leapt out to me across, uh, the, particularly in the weekend's paper and what I've seen uh, before and after, there is, I think, two main things. One is all of a sudden, after the pre-foo, and the realisation that Grant's eaten all the pies, and it really is, you know, as you said, it's the world's greatest turd, that they, Treasury sort of tried to put a little smattering on glitter, and Grant thought, well, they really, he, they didn't shake enough. I don't think they shook enough. Mm. So he's he was out there trying to sort of say, well, I don't know what all the fuss is about. It's not that bad, even though it was markedly worse from what he'd put out in the budget in May. Well, even though it's horrendously bad. I mean, $100 billion of debt. And, you know, there's that thing where he says, oh, we've done this and we've, you know, and they haven't spent a lot of time saying that. Imagine being given $100 billion. What could you do with that? Oh, $100,000 million. Well, do you get the feeling, and this is the feeling I got, that all those PR hacks on their six-figure salaries actually um, had the whip cracked this week because – Everything right across all four editions that I covered and had a look at, there were stories they've obviously decided, okay, well, there's no point talking about our policy anymore because everyone can see straight through that and it's an absolute waste of time. Let's attack nationals 
tax policy. Let's attack Winston. Let's attack David Seymour and his supposed conspiracy theorists on his list. Let's let's just go and do that and try and create as much fuss in the other direction because certainly we can't actually talk about our a our stellar track record. It'll be what inspirational change that we're going to bring to the nation afterwards, other than oh. oh we're going to increase the minimum wage year on year for the next, if we're elected for the next three years. It really was quite astounding. Feature pieces, opinion pieces, in-depth analysis, it was all the yeah. same. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. And the other thing uh, that you raised that I thought was it seems that you, know, you read some of the columns and you think, yeah, it doesn't really sound like you. <laughs> Did, did you sort of get given this as, uh, you know, a lot of some journalists do get given press releases and then put their own little sort of nip and tuck on it and stick their name on it so they Herald can... Hear on uh, Sunday, you know what we're saying. Yeah. I think some of the regular columnists might be <laughs> being given columns to... Uh, there was certainly a shift in tone with a few of them. Yeah, and yes. data. Mm. But more data. Mm. I yeah, yeah. I and mean, I'm not going to go and name names. And I was like, you didn't write this. There's no way on earth you wrote this. But that's where yeah. I think that PR machine has gone. So back to my theory around column inches. Remember, I said to you way back when, what six eight weeks ago, if the election was going to be won on column inches. Uh, Winston was going to win the day, and this was when he was still polling at about three and a half percent. He's now nudge that up depending on which polls you're looking at he's either right on the doorstep at five percent or he's walking walking through he's still getting those column inches he's still whether they be positive or negative i don't think he give a gives a rats i think as long as he's in the paper he's happy well he always looks happy when they put him in the paper don't get that because he does look kind of nasty with his scowls but they always they always find a nice photo of him yeah so he's he's there and they're panicking. You can see that there's an absolute look of fear and panic that he he could be there. So they're now there is much malignment now of all the other parties outside of Labour Greens looking for these errant candidates, these yeah. candidates that could be that really have nefarious point. ideas. Yeah, and, and especially when you see them, they're going, oh, no, I uh... – I have now come to my senses. I no longer think these stupid, stupid, stupid thoughts. Hamilton East MP Ryan Hamilton, you know, had some very valid concerns about, about fluoridation that really it's not good enough to brush off as you're stupid if you think that. It was very interesting also listening to an interview. I think Rodney Hyde did an interview with Matt King, who, of course, is uh, leader of Democracy NZ up in Northland. But one of the most revealing things in that interview was him saying that he was told, look, if you aren't all in with climate change, there's no place for you in the National Party. If you're going to question the mandates, there's there's no room for you here. Mm. And, you know, so he left, which good on him, you know, good on him for um, having the courage to match his convictions. But he said he knew of a few other national MPs who just swallowed it down and, well, you know, I'll lose my job if I don't do this, which is, of course, why a lot of people got vaccinated as well. They didn't mm. want to. 
the amplification of obedience, good, critical thinking, bad. I think at an absolute fever pitch now. I mean, you you look at uh, ACT, you know, five candidates gone, three considered aberrant thinkers in terms of having had mm. tiebacks or against that sort of main narrative idea. Yeah, that, the one you mentioned, even Labour, they dug out one from 2019 because she had yeah. very clear ideas on the Gardasil vaccine. It's, it's again, trying to set this message all the way across that this is the prescribed set of ideas you must adhere to said prescribed set of ideas across the entire political spectrum. And the minute you deviate from that set of ideas, you are smacked with a label often, as you said, begins with the and uh, cast aside as someone that should not be taken seriously. I really do hope from a voting perspective that I, I just have this little inkling that there is going to be a surprise for many of these mainstream parties that people and voters have, have seen through it. I was talking to, I've spoken to two friends in the last 24 hours and they're just trying to solidify where their, their vote's at. And they were bouncing up between d- two different parties, one of those parties being New Zealand First. And neither of these people would be people that I didn't even think that they would consider going mm. there. Both said exactly the same thing. And one of them doesn't keep up with polls and said, oh, well, look, if he's looking like he could possibly get in and he needs a little bit of a nudge to get there, I think I will vote for him. And I'm like, well, actually, that's where things are at right now. Yeah. And I think that's the place where there are a lot of voters out there, whether they be in the freedom camp or in the ACT camp or even in the national camp with some of the national policy that's come out, which is a little bit more global and climate positive thinking than I think some of them would care to admit. Yeah who are looking at Winston thinking, ooh, ooh, I think we might need to go there. I'll be intrigued to see. Yeah, well, I mean, Kirsten Murphy's in at number 11 on uh, New Zealand First List, and I don't know the exact number of what they need to get for her to get in. I think it's maybe just under 7%. So, I mean, it's, it's a fair but carefully considered move by New Zealand First, well, okay, maybe there's a uh, a constituency for us in that freedom movement, but we're going to put it just beyond what we would have got anyway, just doing what we do. Although, you know, to be honest, I, I think that they've gotten a, a bigger kick in the pants from those people who've got, like me, little else to, in, the, in the way of someone who I think is actually confronting the real issues that we're facing and not playing along with off some globalist song sheet. You know, it's so funny because the papers, many of the commentators and our little friend Darth Vance, she was certainly in this camp <laughs> about how boring things were. And I'm thinking, no, you're only calling it boring because ultimately it's actually far from boring. I think that it's it's not necessarily aspirational, but what you've got is this is a year that from an MMP standpoint, democracy in the democratic process is actually going to potentially throw up some surprises. Yeah, I mean. that shit scared. It's quite funny. On and on, this was from Darth Vance's article. On and on the bribes flow, gaslighting voters who can see that the state of the country's finances mean it will already be challenging to meet the existing rising costs of police, defence, health services, superannuation, welfare, 
not to mention replacing rotting pipes, roads and bridges and preparing for extreme weather as the climate warms. Voters know when they are being used, but perhaps in the end, these dreams aren't for us at all. They're a comfort blanket for the politicians, much easier than confronting the gloomy reality of a post-election victory or another sausage roll. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that Chris Hipkins can openly go around saying, well, you know, they're promising all this stuff. There's no money to do it with. It's mm. not his fault. I thought, actually, after, after the um, conference, I went and had a cup of coffee with a mate of mine who's semi-retired and basically trades shares. He was very gloomy. Mm. said that, you know, there's all of these companies that are putting in some great results on the NZX and there's no movement. And, and there was an article to that extent in the Star Times. And Frontera too. I mean, they're yeah. looking at posting, was it $1.2 billion profit? It's likely there will be a big jump after the election if National gets in. But his very gloomy take was, if you can get out of New Zealand, get out. He won't be alone in thinking that. There's yeah. Whether National get in or not, I mean, there's a huge mess to clean up. And, and a lot of the election, although it shouldn't matter, has involved telling people like him, just bugger off. Mm. You, you, Well, as I was saying to you, that big Labour PR machine, one of the key points that was obviously pushed with them was saying to them, right, you need to attack National's tax plan. There's holes in there, holes in the tax plan. Oh, the irony, the irony. You know, so here they are attacking the house of National's tax plan, which could be on shaky ground, but it's only on shaky ground because it's built on the foundations that you left them, the crumbling ruin that you left them after the preboot. So, you know, it's hard to, and they're having to rework those numbers. I mean, the press conference that Chris Luxon gave after the prefu with Nicola Willis, for me, actually was the first time that I've heard him actually sounding like a leader. I was, it it was good. It was, it was solid. I think I mentioned it last week. Nicola Willis said, we're going to have to rework this. You know, this is even worse than we were Mm. expecting because they would have been working off the numbers from the budget, you know, which kind of makes sense. It was only in May. Yeah, how badly can they cock things up in that time? But, you know, there's there's this article in the business section of the Sunday Star Times that I was talking about, Mm. you know, the NZX has turned into a lacklustre performance over the past fortnight, even as expectations of a national win climbed steeply. And it quotes... Prime Minister Chris Hipkins told a Business New Zealand conference earlier this month it was ironic that he was, and this quotes him, one of the great fiscal conservatives in the election campaign. It's a post-truth world, isn't it? Oh, God, that's a... Arguing <laughs> there isn't a gaslight big enough for that one. Yeah, this wasn't the time for significant additional government spending or significant tax cuts. The old Marxist student politicians had a big party and, you know, now there's not enough in the flat account to pay the power. It's saying to bite underpinning carbon prices is a promise the government has made to reduce New Zealand's net carbon emission to 50% of its 2005 gross emission by 2030. This is the one that Christopher Luxon says we're totally fixated on. It's a bad idea. Mm. Although the National Party said the pledge could cripple the economy when climate change minister james shaw haven't heard much about his fake ba have we that Mm -hmm. died in the paper uh, announced it at a united nations conference in glasgow in 2021 nationals climate spokesman simon watts has confirmed it will meet the commitment so they're really falling into line now in this Mm -hmm. 
heads they win, tails we lose kind of giant douche versus turd sandwich choice that New Zealanders are facing. Yeah, I know. And actually, so speaking of the Greens, one of the things I did was we talked about it last week. They seemed very, very absent from the newspaper. So I had a look across the weekend. Other mm. than uh, Martima Davidson spoke at the Year 2 union conference alongside and Chippy and Carmel were there. And of course, you you had the juxtaposition. I mean, because we were at the fairy tale stage, we were all promising writing checks that you know that you're not going to cash. So, yeah. you know, Chippy's like, oh, we're going to increase the minimum wage. Yeah. And then yeah. we're do it every year for the next three years. No, you're not, because you're not going to be there. So let's. Yeah, and, then, and then, of course, you've got Marama turning around and saying, oh, we're going to one-up you five weeks. Mm. You know, because and the Māori Party have... one-upping everyone. I, I saw a talk old uh, Waititi was doing on a marae, and he was saying he wanted a 22% wealth tax. I think they were talking in their policy about eight. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, the Green Party leaders with their satellite dish faces, I haven't seen them at all, hardly, no, and I so quite like it. I have a theory about this. Oh, what's your theory? <laughs> I was. I've been thinking about this because they are. They're gone, and I think, well, where have they gone? And I know Ian Wishart's really quite concerned about this because he's yeah. he's digging up evidence. This guy falsified his convictions. As, yeah. as, um, so I'm thinking. So are they trying to start, fly below the radar so they don't got their little base and no one sees anything? No, I think they're going all Donald Trump. I think they're going all Cambridge Analytica on this. I think that they know they're not going to score any positive points in the mainstream media. Mm. Where they're going to score it is going using algorithm and going directly to that youth voter base, and they don't read the papers. They just are not interested in that engage. And I think their entire strategy is uh, they've got a few key candidates so they're hitting the grassroots. So they've got Chloe there. They're making so a Chloe big... Chloe dressing up as a man. So yeah, Yes, that, that was one of two pieces that I saw in the newspaper. Yeah. Exactly. Chloe getting up and drag. Focusing on the things that matter. Yeah. They've got another candidate, Wellington Central, who's looking strong. And of course, they managed to get their Wellington mayor over the line, the Green um, Tory Fano, And she's in all sorts of trouble now because apparently the Wellington Council is up shit creek with debt. And while she's jetting around in business class here, there and everywhere, but that's another story, they're targeting a couple of good key electorate seats and they know that they've got that core 10% base that they're working off and that's, I think, what they're aiming for. They are hitting the algorithms. I think you'll find where all their news, where all their PR, where everything sits isn't actually on what we're seeing in print per se. Mm. It's in places like spin-off. It's in places like Facebook. I've seen Facebook, TikTok, um, heaps on TikTok. I think that's where they're going. And I think they're Instagram. hitting uh, student unions and all of those sorts of places. Yeah. That's my theory. Well, I guess that, you know, the, there's radio silence in the paper. Maybe they've already started to look at a possible coalition with National, if they've mm. done that U-turn that I mentioned. Yeah. Well. So you know, it's maybe it's that if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. It's like, well, you know, let's um, keep our powder dry for the yeah. post-election negotiations. Yes, indeed. Because yes, they indeed. they really, you know, if they can keep out act, they'd regard that as a win. It looks like David has peaked just a bit too soon. Yeah. I do wonder, as I mentioned before, I think with him. Being the way that he has been with those candidates, 
there are a, a, a number of people that are not necessarily in the freedom camp per se, but they are in the centre-right critical thinking genre and they're seeing his behaviour thinking, yeah, no, that's not exactly cricket, Dave. You know, yeah. the whole point, if you call it, see, I have this real issue, issue around him and people calling them the Libertarian Party or he's the Libertarian candidate. <laughs> he is so far from Libertarian, it's not even funny. So if you're one of those people, stop it. Stop doing it. He's not. If you look at his record and his behaviour and especially even what he's doing right now, if he were a Libertarian, he would have absolutely not a single issue with any one of those candidates that have gone. No one's got the ticket to define being a broad church. Mm. It's it's and you know that's the way corporations work. You've got to have everyone singing from the same sheet. Yeah, uh, it's a pernicious thing that's crept into the national dialogue. Is that thinking? Well, it would just be easier if we didn't have contrarian voices. They just they just make everyone scared. They just yeah, <laughs> stop it. Just stop it. Your tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist rabbit hole exploring dwellers, yeah, grand killers. Well, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting, you know, how we've complained over the last several weeks that the, the um, pickings have been very, very slim in the Saturday Herald. Dare yeah. I say it? Journalism happened in the Herald yeah. on Saturday. Journalism what are we talking happened. about Mick Hall, mate. I am, and in fact, there are two lots. We're going to we, there's two things we're going to talk about uh, in the here, but. My biggest rustle of paper this week comes from the Herald on Saturday. Yeah, a great review piece from David Fisher about McCall. Now, if you don't remember who McCall is, he was the Radio New Zealand journalist who was accused of creating Russian propaganda. And essentially, Mick was cancelled and let go by RNZ. And, and slandered. Oh. And is some. So this is a, fant a fantastic, in-depth, two-page article. It's the first time he's spoken out and giving his side of the story, talking about the inquiry. And it was actually some of the other little insights in there that I found really, really interesting. And again, it all goes to speak to what we were talking about before in terms of, you know, if you start not doing it, stop it, stop it. And Mick is one of those. I mean, here you've got a journalist who's a journalist with integrity, a ton of experience, internationally, um, has worked internationally across multiple theatres and spectrums. He's worked as a sub-editor, and you mm. and I said this right from the get-go when this happened. The first thing we both, I said to you, where, where were the subbies in all of this? Because that's what subbies are meant to do, is yep. sort of run a filter across anything that could be potentially thorny. So the you blanderizers. Yeah. Did you blanderize my story? Exactly. And he was a sub-editor, so he understands all of this. Paul, I've done some shameful things in my life, and I don't think what I did at Radio New Zealand was one of them. I tried to engage in my work with a degree of integrity. I did things in the best interest of the public as far right as I was concerned. I mean, this is a guy who, he was doing his job. Well, John Pilger's comment was was great. Renowned journalist John Pilger described Radio New Zealand's criticisms of Hall's edits as compliant, frightened censorship. And that's a that's an apt description of it. Yeah. It was Pilger who highlighted an offer of work made publicly to Hall by Consortium News, a US-based online news outlet set up to counter the, and he quotes here, quotes him here, silliness and propaganda that had come to pervade American journalism. 
And I'd venture to suggest New Zealand journalism to an even worse effect. This is the kudos that I am going to give the New Zealand Herald, is the fact that they have actually printed this. Because later on, Gavin Ellis, who is um, a former New Zealand Herald editor, he was uh, quite scathing. I think he's actually a little disturbed about this. And he went on to say, any newsroom is predicted on the ability to refer upwards. Nowhere in mainstream daily journalism are you a lone actor. You're part of a team that puts together the day's news. Now, I agree with that, but also at the same token, it depends on the integrity of the team, does it not? Mm. It, the team is made up with a group of individuals and you're actually able to have an opinion, whereas this is sort of saying, well, if you're part of the team, you're not allowed to, you know, this is the party line, you can't deviate from the party line. And I'm thinking, well, he didn't really. He drew from a variety of sources and Meanwhile, National Radio slipped from number one to number five, even with a $27 million cash injection from Willie. From the, from the taxpayer or from bankers who print money. What it highlights to me, that there are certain positions out there, and the war in Ukraine is one of them, that there are hard fixed lines and you are not allowed to question the line, that line that has been placed. The COVID response is another one. The climate is another one. And mm. you either tow that line or you do not. Yeah, and mass I, medication with fluoride, which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat agnostic about because I don't know enough about it. Although I did write some stories about it when I was a journalist myself, and I found the people who were urging caution about it compelling. But again, unless we have the open debate, we're not going to arrive at the best conclusions. You're exactly right, an open debate. But there are topics that are deemed verboten for debate: COVID, climate war in Ukraine, anything with Trump and the corruption in the Biden family. You know, there are things that it's like, no, this is it. You're not allowed to mention Mm. any of those things. And if you do, you sit on one side of the fence and that allows mud to be slung at you, dehumanisation. And we'll go back to Darth Vance's horror that the introduction of, of some of these candidates via New Zealand First, the possibility they might get into Parliament, could take the public debate off its tracks. <laughs> the fact that she acknowledges, even she, probably unwittingly, that it is on tracks, that you're not yeah. allowed to go off. Yeah, but also, too, the fact that she also thinks that there's a debate. Oh, yeah. wouldn't debate be a fine thing? Wouldn't it now? Wouldn't it? What has happened to McCall is absolutely directly analogous to what has happened to a number of medical professionals across this country in regard to the COVID situation. It's this blanket cancelling, professional cancelling and humiliation that they try to place if you do not toe that line. As the Chinese say, kill the chickens to train the monkeys. And so the people who step out of line first get made an example of so everyone else looks at them and thinks, ooh, I don't want that to happen to me. Mm, exactly, exactly. Right, finally, I do want to talk about Bruce Cottrell because I, so what I deliberately did, everybody, is I go through, I read everything else that I had and I say Bruce to last because then Bruce is the balm to actually soothe my soul and try and bring my blood pressure back down to a safe level after we've consumed everything else. This is the sacrifice that I do for you guys, okay? 
I am, as I put my blood pressure on the line for you. Bruce Cottrell, as always, never fails to disappoint. Trust and respect missing from the campaign agenda. I know we're diving back to politics, but he had his picker up this week, very much so. Perhaps if politicians lifted their own standards, the rest of us might follow. I agree, Bruce. Uh, as 10 founders Cecilia Robinson said in an excellent article, we need highly capable people of good character to step forward and take on these roles as our country's leaders. If we can't treat them with respect, we won't attract the quality candidates. And while I'm on the topic, I don't care how many houses a politician has or what type of food they like. I care about their capability, their policies and their capacity for work. We need capable people with good policy who can get on with the very large job ahead. Amen, Bruce Cottrell. I mean, I tend to go upstream from this sort of thing. He's saying, oh, we need more people of, of capability and principle to be elected. But what he's maybe not fully internalizing is there's a process to keep such people out in favor of people who will just keep their eyes on the prize and mouth the various platitudes that the party gives them. Christopher Luxon. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's worse than people like that aren't standing. People like that are being excluded. And if they deviate from the party line, they're being ejected. So the problem's a little bit greater than that, I would, I would think. And there's almost a sense that we're racing to a point of no return because they must, I mean, they'll know they'll be found out, but they don't seem to care. And that, that gives me an uneasy feeling. No, they really don't care. They really don't care. He goes on to say there are some other heavyweight issues that don't seem to be getting any airtime. One thing we should be concerned about is the amount of legislation passed under urgency by a majority government in the past three years. Passing a bill under urgency means that the traditional process of a bill becoming law is fast-tracked instead of the bill being presented for a number of readings, with consultation and select committee considering it between readings, and multiple stages are mashed together. Consultation is minimalised and the readings can happen almost simultaneously. Someone once said, with great power comes great responsibility. If one is given a lot of power, it is important to be measured and constructive in applying the power to the decisions that you make. This government, the first majority government under MMP, has failed that test. Plenty of experienced people will tell you that legislation passed under urgency often turns out to be bad legislation. And yet again, this government has passed so much new legislation under urgency, including such urgent matters as enabling of the divisive three waters policy and the replacement for the Resource Management Act, these policies have such major ramifications and ramming them through under urgency is the opposite of good and considered management. Yeah, well, that's true. I think, I mean, I've, I will confess sometimes, Marie, I feel despair. <laughs> I do just think, man, you know, if those facts are available and people are at the point where they'd just rather not look at them, we're, we're riding this all the way down. So. By all means, you know, I still read the paper and I still follow what these guys are saying. But particularly, as I said, after I've watched River of Freedom, and I'll inject into, into the sentence, if you haven't seen it, grab five of your friends who were moaning about your Facebook posts, take them along. Yeah, the, the fact that we're this far down 
we're this close to the ground and there's still that many people who don't see that we've just got to pull up. It's time to get some like-minded people together and, and make sure that you're in a position where you can cope with brownouts and maybe the water out of the tap not being fit to drink and, and so on. As gloomy as that sounds. We've got a pandemic of metaphorical elephants running through the room where they're seeing, as you said, they've rid the elevator all the way down. They're seeing what's there, but they're not actually seeing that it was not an elevator that they rode down. They probably slid down the tube of a hypodermic needle. But dare I say it, they, they're still not prepared to take a look at all the elements that created the issues that they have. I mean, there was another article in the post you wouldn't have seen around the slump in tertiary numbers. And they were citing all these other reasons at why, you know, students are not going to university. And it's just like, well, potentially the reason these students aren't going to university is that they're, they're sick of all the ideological rubbish that's there now, the expense that is there, they're not actually getting value for money when they come out the other side. And when you've got actually a stressed job market, which now has is looking for people and you can actually go out into the marketplace, earn and train on the job as opposed to going into an, an indoctrination camp, which many of these universities and tertiary education facilities have become. Mm. So they're, they're checking out of the system. Yeah, It's not rocket science. Mm. Yeah, I mean, other things as well, like the, and this is what worries me about Luxon, he's all on board with the World Health Organization and giving them sovereignty over New Zealand, and something like 70% of their funding come from vested interests. In Australia, the, one of the figures quoted in the, at the conference was that 96% of the fu- funding of the Therapeutic Goods Administration, or the TGA, whether the A stands for administration, comes from Big Pharma. It's huge. Mm. 65% of the FDA's funding. Not everything they do is bad, but if we don't have a process where we can openly discuss, well, what effect is that having on the advice we're being given, particularly as the current government moves to sign us up to something that effectively has the capability of suspending national sovereignty? You know, if, if we're on rails and we're being controlled much the same way as... A lot of policy seems to come out of the World Economic Forum. You know, not all of it's bad. Some of it might be great. But the fact we're not having any discussion at all about it, even allowed to acknowledge that it's happening, uh, that's the first step. Whatever the facts are that that we might discuss, the fact that we can't discuss it is, uh, is a bit of a white-knuckle ride. And it also, too, all goes to fueling that lack of trust that is now really beginning to manifest itself. Cottrell even said the word trust keeps coming up in this campaign. I suggest that these are not the actions of people who are acting in the best interests of the country. Rather, this behaviour speaks to the standards that members of this parliament have set for themselves. And the standards need to be higher. Pursuing narrow, controversial policies has taken priority over what most of us would consider the basics. As a result, we've seen careless attitudes towards government borrowing and spending on pet projects, while politicians seem uninterested in the real issues affecting people, such as crime, roading, health and education. In this election campaign, our Prime Minister tells us that COVID vaccines were not compulsory, or he says that he will toughen up on gangs or enhance financial education in schools, but nothing he and his colleagues say is believable because they're not in it for us. They're in it for themselves and the agendas they want to pursue probably under urgency. Well, 
And then, yeah, as I said, downstream from that, the fact that the media haven't really taken them to task about their non-performance. They can unironically, you know, quote Chris Hipkins as saying he's financially conservative and just just floats on by. Um, well, the good news I, is I, I think you and I will still continue to be here to try and keep them honest on this stuff. Well, I'm having um, a bit of an off week. <laughs> I seem to be uh, a little bit gloomier than usual, and it's partly, I guess, confronting some of the numbers that I've been exposed to and, uh, you know, my friend just uh, saying, ah, mate, you know, eject, eject. In the end, I, I, you know, my comfort blanket, Marie, is that Confucian saying, if you look into your own heart and find nothing wrong there, what is there to worry about? What is there to fear? That's my, my one comfort. There's a lot of things going right in my own life, I guess, in my own family, and I just have to keep plugging along at that and get together with like-minded people and make sure that, you know, I'm somewhat prepared to meet some of the things that I think could happen if we keep going on this path and just keep speaking out and as honestly and clearly as I can about what I see going on. Yeah. Did you know, I mean, we've just had our six-month birthday. Did you oh, know really? that? Yes, yesterday. Wow. Stop it. I know, six months. Six months of speaking truth and, and even just having conversations that you're not hearing anywhere else here on Reality Check Radio. So thank you to everybody that's tuned in, all the feedback you and I are getting. Actually, oh, actually, let's do some quick feedback because we are getting feedback. I feel better. That'll, that'll perk you up. Should I perk I you up with some feedback, eh? <laughs> Bit of feedback I got at the conference was, it's just, it, you know, it's just really enjoyable to listen to. It's, you know, just two people talking shit, but, but you know, like having done a bit of research. <laughs> well, it is pretty much you and I. Pretty good summary. Mind you, people kind of knew the, the amount of time that we do actually spend. And I think to myself, did I really need to read all of that? But then you do because we never know where a conversation is going to take us. And and that's why we do it. You know? Well, I've been caught somewhat napping this week. I didn't have the usual the usual day to read all the papers. No. Well, you're, you're a... I noticed them. See, the old concern about Māori seems to be Back in the foreground, uh, sort of who gets well, I, hurt. I think there are certain Māori um, elite that are a little bit worried that the uh, spigot's going to get turned off. That's definitely yeah. the impression that I got with that. Yeah. Well, uh, so this was from Mike. Hi, guys. I really started to appreciate your show now. I've been stuck in with the CAM mindset of how to vote and not letting real stuff in. But after my trip to America, I'm starting to sort things out in my head and listen more to, to more balanced views. I'm not saying that CAM is unbalanced. Or is he? Lol. <laughs> um, no, he's not actually, but he's uh, oh, funny. Anyhow, listening to your Media Matters show and loving it. One thing Marty said about the motorsport rang true for me. A young girl you spoke about who won her fourth championship. So proud that these young Kiwis get up and keep going. Well done, young lady. Again, thank you for your balanced thinking and reporting. By the way, Marie, I'm going to send you a pic of my knee blanket my wife knitted for me just months before. Oh, just months before she died. And in the last few weeks, she was blind, so still managed to put it together. I find that sort of spirit amazing and i know she would have stood with me in the fight against marxism and corrupt governments cheers mike thank you oh, mike um I'm sorry to hear oh, that, i'll mike. look forward to seeing the picture of that blankie uh, and actually uh, further to mike 
talking about the young lass, uh, Marie Courtney Duncan, that was the name of the motorsport girl. She hailed from the tiny town of Waikowiti, 40 minutes north of Dunedin. Love your guys' show, Aotearoa Farm, and you and Marty just give me great joy. Thanks, guys. That's from Joy. Waikowiti is actually a lovely place way down south. They used to make very good cheese down there. <laughs> they did. Anyway, the things I remember. Oh, here we go. I love this one. Oh, oh my FG, spat coffee, so many turds, so little glitter. Cheers, D. You made my day, Marie and Marty. Mm. New Zealand First is now my uh, is now also my first time. And he's the only politician that never gets flustered and has direct and clear answers. That's in regards to what we were talking about with uh, his speech. Uh, hi, Marie. Thank you so much for the critical thinkers of uh, Reality Check Radio. And I really appreciate your voices of reason and veritas. So there you go. Some really nice positive feedback. Oh, it's, I'm pleased that we're we're not alone. As always, uh, I do appreciate you coming to join me again this morning. And if you've got any comments whatsoever and you want to cheer Marty up and tell him how much he <laughs> means to you because he's feeling a bit glum today, inbox at realitycheck.radio or you can text us on 2057. And you and I will do it all again next week. Can't wait. Thanks, Marie. Have a great week. Don't disappear here on Counterculture. Woke News of the Week is up next. It's time for the Woke News of the Week. Woke News of the Week is a selection of news stories with an ideological bent. Here are some of the ones that have caught my eye across the past week. Anti-racism centre in strife. Ibram X. Kendi's anti-racist research centre at Boston University has faced significant turmoil, including layoffs and allegations of mismanagement. The centre laid off approximately 15 to 20 out of its 45 staff members as it shifted towards a fellowship-based model. Boston University confirmed these layoffs but expressed its commitment to the support of the affected employees in finding new opportunities. Former and current staff members accused Kendi, a prominent activist and scholar, of wielding too much power and creating a toxic work environment. Some employees described the culture as exploitative, citing unreasonable work hours and the lack of structure. These allegations contrasted sharply with the initial enthusiasm that followed Kendi's appointment in the wake of the widespread racial equality protests in 2020. Kendi's work, particularly his book on how to be an anti-racist, gained recognition for its contributions to the discourse on anti-racism. His hiring prompted substantial donations, including a $1.5 million gift from Vertex and a $10 million contribution from Twitter founder Jack Dorsey and support from the Rockefeller Foundation. Furthermore, Kendi's books, notably Anti-Racist Baby, were controversial for including complex concepts like critical race theory to children. Kendi defended his work as a means to help people, including children, understand and combat racism. Overall, the situation at the Anti-Racist Research Centre reflects both the impact of Kendi's influential work and the challenges and controversies it's generated, including internal strife and allegations of mismanagement. I think we can safely assume that we can put this one under Go Woke, Go Broke. Britain's Great Slowdown the contentious issue of the 20 miles per hour speed limits sweeping across the UK, particularly in residential and built-up areas, critics led by the Alliance of British Drivers, the ABD, argue that the dogmatic councils and woke government officials are imposing these limits, inflating motorist costs and prolonging travel times. They accuse authorities of using safety concerns in order to squash opposition. 
Despite the resistance, Twenties Plenty for Us, a pro-slow activist group, is advocating for the expansion of the 20-mile-per-hour zones. They celebrate that 28 million Britons now reside in areas with these speed limits. Wales is at the forefront of the shift, with the Labour-run Wales introducing a default 20-mile-per-hour limit in residential areas, despite projections that it may cost the country's economy £9 billion over three decades. Similarly, London's Labour Mayor Sadiq Khan plans to convert a substantial portion of the city's main roads into these zones. Supporters of these speed limits contend that they enhance the safety in the urban and village environments without significantly increasing journey times, as other factors like traffic signals and pedestrian crossings have a more produced impact. However, critics argue that the blanket 20 mile per hour limits in Wales will impede emergency response times and exacerbate traffic congestion. Puzzling prolific pronouns. In a dazzling display of modern stupidity, The Skin Bar, a celebrity-frequented beauty salon in Sydney, offers its discerning clientele an astonishing array of 43, that's right, 43 pronoun options for booking their appointments. This list goes beyond the basic he, him, she, her, or they, them, to include gems like kit, mer, nay, hey, she, and them. Yep, you read it right. Even the wokest among us might need a Rosetta Stone to decipher all these pronouns. But wait, there's more. Clients can select up to four pronouns because who needs just one? There's A, a gender-neutral pronoun inspired by the 1920 sci-fi novel about aliens made of air, and Hey, a pronoun born of the internet sci-fi comic and a plot twist that can be used by anyone, regardless of gender identity. Not everyone is thrilled about the linguistic buffet. Terry Barnes, a journalist and political consultant, labels it as an absurd fad and asserts that pronouns are based on perception, not personal choice. Despite the scepticism, though, the Skin Bar's founder, Samantha Apple, defends the pronoun plethora, claiming they are simply keeping up with the times. So if you ever find yourself yearning for a beauty treatment and you have an existential linguistic crisis, head on over to one of the Skin Bar's five Sydney branches. You can actually choose almost a pronoun for every single one. Russell Brands accuses Speak Out. Russell Brand is facing serious allegations of sexual assault and abuse from four women who shared their harrowing experiences on a television special titled Russell Brand in Plain Sight. These allegations have been previously exposed by the Sunday Times in a joint investigation with Channel 4. The accusations include rape, sexual assault and emotional abuse. The documentary revealed that one of the alleged rapes occurred at Brand's Los Angeles residence shortly after his divorce with Katy Perry in 2012. Brand vehemently denies these accusations, asserting that his past relationships were consensual and he has taken to his own social media and platform to plead his case. The women explained their silence for over the years, attributing it to Brand's perceived invulnerability in the public eye. The allegations in the television special generated significant public attention and scrutiny. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057 that's 2057 so get in touch with us now thank you for joining me for another dose of counterculture this week and have you downloaded the app yet i know i've gone on about the app today but trust me it 
is a game changer. I've been testing it for a couple of weeks and I love it. It is so easy to use. It's available now in the app stores, both iOS for Apple and Android, and best of all, it's free. If you haven't downloaded it yet, please do. It's fabulous. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.